Resuming from break. This part will be edited out. This part will be edited out too. Yes. This part will be edited out too. Two. 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 Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> this podcast is over. This podcast is just beginning. Ariam sang a song called The Game of the Game. Joanna. <laughs> <laughs> I am Dylan. Um, we are people. That's true. People you Factual. may you may learn more about uh, as the podcast goes on. We are also friends, which is cool. And we'll talk about that that more later. We have opinions. We have opinions. A few of them. Um, there won't always be opinions on this podcast, but it is a distinct possibility. Um, definitely for this episode, presumably for future episodes. Uh, so start us off. I want to invite you, our large audience of listeners. Large audience. Behind. As the, opposed to the audience of large listeners, which we probably. <laughs> had, well, I mean, if, if, I'm sure listening to podcasts correlates with largeness. <laughs> I think so. Then again, a lot of people listen to podcasts at the gym. At the gym? Yeah. Yeah, I never understood that. I'm, I can't, I can listen to music when I'm doing exercise, but I cannot listen to words. Because it makes you want to just, like, sit still? Yeah, and, like, think about things. Okay. Yeah, well, you know, some people are able to... But the to... point is, only fat <laughs> <laughs> Okay. I was going to say, some people are capable of both thinking and moving at the same time, but I understand. <laughs> um... Okay, well, as you can tell, we're... we're incredibly we're, 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 Well, I was going to say we're really funny. Um, looking, ah, no, okay, sorry. What the hell is happening? Anyway, well, I was going to invite you from behind the curtain, uh, just so you can see how... Some of the podcast names you were thinking about. Yeah. Before what, we settled on the possibility, possibility of, of opinions. opinions. Um, so we're going to take turns. I'm going to give you number 10, since you came up with that. Okay. Number 10, portrait of an autist. <laughs> I can't even finish this. Portrait of an autist. <laughs> you have to say. I can't say. Portrait of an autist oh and some kosher cans. Oh, man. I hope no one ever hears that. Okay. I mean, that's not... I, I, don't, I really want I, bad people everywhere to hear that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, we, that was number 10 because I appreciate the wordplay, but it is a terrible title. It's a terrible title. 10 out of 10. Okay. So since you failed last one, now you can give us number nine. Number nine was Zoomcast, like the podcast, but you know. Zoom. We don't like Apple. We don't like Apple. Apple's um, bad. Uh, number eight is Neil's not invited. Yeah, that's a little awkward. Neil's my boyfriend, and he is technically invited. He's right. Just not he, a... He's welcome. He's welcome. Yeah. But this is this is a podcast. We'll get into that. But it's about celebrating friendship, and you know, boyfriends are great, but they're not friends. I unless they're friends who are boys. But they, we'll, we'll get into that. Right. Yeah. It's it just sort of. It, that's not what this podcast is about. Yeah. No. 
I'm just a jerk, basically. He's a uh, jerk. Uh, episode 7 is... Episode 7? Sorry. Title 7 is Klingon Sneeze. Um, episode 7. Which uh, originates from a first season episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, and I will just put the clip here. I think I may sneeze. A Klingon sneeze? Only kind I know. Um, I think that's... I love that, but uh, it makes no sense and has no context to anyone except nerds who we obviously don't want listening to this podcast. Unless they're fat nerds, in which case they can listen. <laughs> uh, wait, I, I, I think we messed up who's... We, we're not doing this alternating. What are you to read number six? I'll do six. Six is moving through space. Um... Why, why was that a possible podcast title? Oh, yeah, I wrote that. I should have read that. Because uh, I'm bad at moving through space because I don't think and move at the same time. I get, Well, yeah, I mean, that was part. I definitely was thinking about your your and, um, and your spatial impairments. But I was also, God, this is going to come out and people are going to be like, this podcast is so ableist. Everyone get, but then again, I mean, we've already fat shamed and now we're on to ableism. We just have to get them all before the end and I, we're good. That's true. But I guess I was going to say, on the other hand, like, it's not really true that there's no such thing as bad publicity, but in terms of getting people to listen to things on Twitter, it sort of is. Um, but, uh, yes. Do you know that cans means boobs? I was aware of that. <laughs> okay. I just wanted to make sure that you knew what you were saying. Um, I felt like... No, I, no, I think... I, th- I would hope you would understand, as a Jew, that boobs are not, in fact, They're kosher. not kosher. Yeah, They're not can't... kosher. Right. Unless... Are there kosher animals that have boobs? I yeah, because you can eat beef, and cows have, well, they have something. They have an udder. Yeah. It's not That's boob. not really boobs. That's not, it would be, yeah, it doesn't work. So I'm thinking about, but some mammals have to have something, right? I mean, can you eat, can, can you eat monkeys in part of kosher? I actually don't know. That's, I'll have to look that up for now. I mean, time. they didn't have monkeys in Israel, so that No, but there's really... rules, like, most of the kashrut um, are stuff that ra- rabbis came up with afterwards, right. like, loosely based on what's in right. the Torah. So there's a rule, but I okay. don't know what that rule okay. is. Okay, yeah. You don't need to monkey around with that stuff. Uh, there we go. Oh, you read number five. Five, Just Podcast. Okay, this is really cool, um, but it's going to, well, whatever. Just Podcast was the idea um, that it's, like, just a podcast, but also... The Just Podcast, like the Fairness Podcast, that is a takeoff of the JP system. Which we'll talk about shortly. Which we'll talk about later, which is Just Points. Um, same sort of idea. It's really cool. We'll tell you about it later. It makes no sense right now. Four is Ideas Above Their Station. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Who wrote Did I write that or did you write that? It was that? you. It was me? I would never write Above Their Station. I was going to say, I'm, that just I, I'm more, I'm more, above I, my station. I'm more eloquent and clever than I thought I was. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I, okay, yes. Like, I, I like things that are a little bit snooty. Yeah, um, me too. And, and I like the idea of spending a large amount of time and energy talking about things which are not generally considered the most pressing thing of the moment. Yeah. Um, number three? Number three. Unnecessary arguments. Uh, this refers to just our general mode of operating in the world and also most arguments in the world in general if we're being honest most arguments and mostly us most of the time yeah yes okay uh number two what no you should read number two why are you this way this is a thing that i ask dylan a whole hell of a lot why are you this way and not just dylan actually a lot of people a lot of the time but dylan in particular 
uh, most of the time when we are together, I am asking him this question. Yeah, which I can't answer. And then, of course, the very first one, the one that we ended up going with. Is a possibility of opinions, which um, I read SCOTUS blog sometimes, which is the premier uh, Supreme Court commentary blog. And they were talking about how in the upcoming session, um, the Supreme Court basically is, is very formal in many ways, would I imagine. They release new information on certain set dates. So they're saying, oh, this coming up Monday, there's a new conference and there's a possibility of opinions. And I really liked that very formal way of, of saying that. And I think it is what you will find on this podcast. And talking about the possibility of opinions, not the podcast, not the quote from the SCOTUS blog, uh, what is this and who are we? Um, I'm Joanna. You are not Joanna. <laughs> no, no kosher cans, man. Uh, sometimes I get confused. Um, well, in America, we generally say our name and our job. I'm, I told this particularly of American What's your thing. name and what do you do? My name is Dylan and I'm a librarian. Uh, where are you a librarian? I'm a librarian at the Sacramento Public Library, which is in Sacramento. Sacramento, California. Yeah. California. What, uh, what's your favorite part about being a public librarian in Sacramento, California? There's no way I can answer that question and not be really corny. It's okay. okay. No, it's fine. I really like... Uh, helping people, I feel that the librarian, the librarian, haha, the library is like, it's sort of the last bastion for all sorts of questions. It is the only place in most cities where you can walk into it and be there and get help with no expectation. You're not, you're not a customer. You don't have to buy anything, mm -hmm. right? And we're there to help you. And all the and time people like, if you need a computer, someplace can get free computers at the library. You know, you need help finding questions and answers, just navigating all sorts of things. Like, it's it's the place to do it. Right. And I think a lot of people think of libraries as being a place that you can get books. But Which they are. Them. Yes. Which they are. I don't I don't want to skim over that aspect of libraries. I think that's really cool. And I certainly appreciate that part of libraries growing up. It's just not where my personal energies are. Uh, because you can walk into a library and ask for help with pretty much anything. Yeah. And, and we'll do our best. Or connect you with somebody yeah. if you can, right? Yeah. Um, do you have a story off the top of your head you want to tell? Something that happened in the library? Obviously, no names. But yes. Um, maybe a tell a story or something. Uh, yeah. So I uh, one of the things I do at library at the library is I work Telus, which is a um, it's the telephone information system. So um, you can call us a number, call a number, and ask us essentially any question that's not completely terrible. Actually, you can ask us some pretty terrible questions. We basically, we treat everything as a legitimate uh, inquiry. So you can, one, for instance, uh, I will say that about a week ago, I got someone called me and they want to know the breakdown of blood types across the population of Switzerland. Why? Don't know. They didn't say. We, we don't, yeah, they didn't say and we don't ask you. If you call a library, we don't say, why do you want to know? Even though we really want to know that sometime, we're just here to help you. So, um, and then it might have been tied to this, so I wasn't quite getting the connection. They wanted to know um, if there was evidence that some of the population of Switzerland was descended from Hannibal and his entourage, who moved through the Swiss Alps um, during the Carthaginian invasion of Rome. Huh. Um, Interesting. I poked around on this. It turns out our best guess is that they actually went through the Alps between France and Italy and not through what is now Switzerland at also all. Interesting. So sort of a no point. But yeah, that's, you know. Of course, and usually the question's like, when's my book back? 
you know, when's my book due back? Can I renew this? Yeah, yeah, Do yeah, I have yeah, fines? Yeah, you get those slots. Yeah. 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 But, uh, yeah, you get, you get interesting stuff. Cool. Cool. All right. Um, I'm Joanna. Uh, I am a public librarian. Wait, no, I'm the public librarian. I'm also a public librarian. You can't be a public librarian. A possibility of two librarians, buddy. I'm a public librarian in Brooklyn, New York. One of the things that um, is is true about Brooklyn is that uh, it is one of it, it is one library system, and there are actually three in the city, um, which is great if you are a resident of New York City because you can go to all three and you're eligible for a library card at all three, and everybody loves you. Um, but if you work at Brooklyn Public Library, a lot of the requests that you field are people who assume that you are part of some generic abstract citywide library system and that like say the new york public library which is staten island manhattan and the bronx they really could have named that better they really could have <laughs> but i just assumed without ever having looked it up that new york public library was the first of the three and so they probably at the time they were new york public library you just rename yourself or you went the new york Okay, never mind. We have to look up the history for now. Again, this is boring. It's boring. Okay. Um, what 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 else is there to say about? I mean, I don't know. What do I, I say? I mean, I don't know. We can you can give us your full life story right now, and uh, and we full can. Life story. Say, I said oh, I was gonna say, but oh, I can't. I was gonna say, or we could just they could just learn about us through. Right. Like, so, let's be honest. So what it, is this podcast? Right. So we're a couple oh, of librarians. How did we meet? That's it. So uh, like. Uh, live journal. Live journal. So you kids, those were the days. Like, can we can we explain what Live Journal is to the kids who don't don't know? I can't believe there are kids who don't know what Live Journal is. They I'm... better be fat kids. <laughs> you think this is much funnier than I do? I don't care. People make me laugh. Okay. Which is great because as a fat person, you're always happy. <laughs> That's right. Uh, um, um, where are we going with this? Oh yes. So um, I, we met in the comment section of. A the Hampshire College blog, which is very boring. By the way, on Live Journal, uh, Hampshire College with a a college in Massachusetts that you could join. Oh my up. God, we met. We went to the same college, so that's really yes. where we befriended each other. But we we originally met on a Live Journal community um, for our college, um, and that like so when Dylan came to visit the college, like we'd met a Live Journal, we met up and. At school, and I just showed him around. Um, Hampshire College is not that large, so it, you can do it in a couple hours pretty mm-hmm. easily. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I think one thing that we had in common is um, we had uh, less of an interest in, um, you know, in partying and in. What, what, what do people do in college usually? I don't know. Uh, yeah, so whatever. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, right? Yes. And we were more like movies, video games, and what? Just going to be a third thing. Drugs in your case. You definitely drank. Yes, I did drink. Mm-hmm. But, well, alcohol's very loosely considered, like, when you say drugs, are you usually talking about? Yes, but that's, a, that's it is true, but that's a silly cultural distinction. <sighs> um, okay. Silly anyway, cultural distinctions aside, uh, what is this? We've been fr- we've been friends for ten years, and we talk and we. Is it ten? Isn't that like? Uh, well, I went to like eleven now. Yeah, eleven. I can't count. Two thousand seven. Yeah, right? yeah we and did... I started school in two thousand five, so right, maybe yes. even you came the year after me, right? Uh, yes. Or two years after me. Yes, but because of the way that you were, it's oh five to oh six, and oh six to oh seven. So you're, the oh seven was the second half of your second year. Yes. So it's so so it's eleven years. Just trust me on this. 
we didn't meet the, in the fall of the year. No, except it's accepted students day is the fall is when you accept. So I went for accepted students day, which is when people come after they've been accepted. So they come in the spring. It's in April. No. Yes. Start school in the fall in college. You do, I swear. No, but we met before I started school. In the spring. In the spring. Oh, for okay. So we student. met in the spring of 2007. Yes. And then you started school in fall of 2007. Correct. Of fall of 2007. Correct. Okay, okay, got it, got it. Yes. I was like, what are you talking about? Okay. This is going to be very interesting for our, for our listeners. Once we edit all of this junk out. You're going to edit it out, right? Uh, well, we'll find out. If uh, I choose to keep this in and I promise you that I would edit it out and you're like, why is this podcast so bloated, then I'm sorry. And you can t- give me that feedback when we release this. Yeah. What is this? I mean, not what is this? this, but this podcast. Uh, this podcast is called uh, A Possibility of Opinions, but there were other titles we considered. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> um. Okay, so what this up oh, crap. <laughs> I was trying to pull off my sweatshirt and I just ripped the sleeve. So as noted, definitely not fat. A hole for your thumbs. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Um this podcast is a couple of things. One is that Joanne and I do not live in the same place. We don't. And have I'm never lived in the same place. Working at Sacramento Public Library and we're right. Public Library. So we'd like to, to me, it would have been crap for all Right, of us. exactly. Um and you know, friendships keep long distance friendships are hard and you want to find hard. ways to keep them Keep them alive. Keep hope alive. alive. I, I am not. I'm. Is is this just a penis joke? <laughs> joke. I don't. What if, I don't. Are you just repeating the last word I say in a sentence? Sentence. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I don't. So this this podcast is uh is a celebration of friendship, an act of friendship, um. And and in a, in, a, in a society that does not really appreciate friendship very much. Right. We feel strongly that this society does not appreciate friendship enough. And one of the examples I'd like to give is that, like, if you go to the grocery store and you look at People Magazine and all the tabloids, how many of it is about who people are dating and how much of it is about who people are friends with? And... You know, I think in this case, when we're talking about the cover of People magazine, we're not just—we're really talking about fucking, not dating. Right, it's right, just exactly. dating is the right, right. There's an idea, and so it's not just—we don't think friendship is interesting, if nothing else. We say this is boring. That's you know, it's like it's it's eating your greens. You know, it's something that is you know, we we acknowledge like most people we want friends. We acknowledge that they're necessary for existence, but it's almost viewed um, as banal, and. I would say that, uh, in my experience, my friendship with you is not banal. We are anything. It's moderately satisfying. Moderately satisfying. (laughs) Um, Well, and I think also, I don't know, we have a friend, do we want to say his name out loud, who talks about, you know, who has been posting a lot lately about tribes. We want to give him a shout out. Yes. So, I know how to say his first name. Do you know how to say his last name? Sotala. Okay. Kai Sotala. Um, He has been posting a lot on Facebook, at least recently, about this notion of a tribe and what it would mean to not necessarily be dependent on your sexual partners for emotional intimacy, but rather share that aspect with a group. Mm -hmm. Um, And that actually ties in a little bit to research done in various fields about how people understand themselves, regardless of what they think about how they understand themselves. Mm -hmm. We can get into that more later. Um, But... This idea that maybe it's not a bad thing that we have groups of friends who are chosen family, you yeah. know, and so I think in the United States at least we have this idea that choosing family means choosing the person that you're going to have babies with and mm-hmm. have a romantic relationship with, mm-hmm. and 
you know, as time, you know, as time has progressed, it's widened a little bit. Now you get to choose, maybe you get to choose a romantic partner who isn't heteronormative. Right. But it's still this that notion of how many people get, have, have the right to make romance the focal point right. of their social satisfaction. And maybe that itself needs to be blown up. Right. Um, and, and in doing so, possibly more people get what they want because we are allowing probably not for the first time ever, but, you know, for the first time in a while, this idea of not having a nuclear family doesn't necessarily mean that the only other alternatives is are romantic. Um, so it could theoretically satisfy a number of different groups across the spectrum. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know, it's just interesting. Um, and I think especially now with everyone being so partisan and everyone, I don't know, yeah, feeling kind of alienated, you get... You get There's a lack of connection between our fellow human right. beings. And, 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 I mean, and that sounds corny, but it's true. Yeah, and the rise of these different ways of connecting with people as well. So, you know, thinking about all of that as the philosophical background for a bunch of conversations about media and uh, the news and politics and uh, general relevant discussions and some humor... Hopefully. Which is, yeah, which is what we'll be doing. I think, yes, that sounds right. Yep, and so that's that's the general tent. We also have a pillar of the podcast, which is um, the JP system. Right, and so this is... I, you, thought, I thought you don't even remember the origin story. No, no, no. I'm okay, go ahead, sure. I'm just say that, like, you remember earlier I said, I we were doing the titles, and I said Just Podcast. And yes. what I said about Just Podcast was that we would explain to you the JP system later, but Just Podcast was a takeoff of that sort of an... An homage, is that how you say that word? Mm-hmm. An homage? I think the first time I've ever said that word out loud. Mm-hmm. I, I say it as homage in my head. I know, me too. Homage to um, to this thing that Dylan and I have been doing since we're, we were in college called the JP system. Dylan's going to tell the story. Chances are um, the reality is that I'm a lot better than I sound in this story. I have a feeling. We'll see how it goes. You're a lot better now than you sound in this story. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right, let's um, see. Go for it. So in college... Joanna and I would argue a lot because we both had very strong convictions and were quick to judgment. Um, True. And there was one time where Joanna was arguing about um, whether whether something was true, and we didn't really have the information at hand to determine whether or not she was right. So I said, well, given that about 90% of the time we have a disagreement, you're wrong, I think we should just operate under the assumption that you know you're wrong in this one until and you would not you were absolutely not okay with that and you kind of <laughs> said i mean first you can't use probability like that it doesn't work like that you know you, you you have to take things on their own terms and you that thing. and second i'm not usually wrong where do you get that from blah 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 and so and so and i was going to be like okay well you want to bet that we also there's something thing where she when things really got tough i'm like you want to bet but joanna won't bet money on things well she knows she knows it all because, no. Well, now I don't put money on things because I live in New York City and I wouldn't be able to pay rent if I lost a bet. <laughs> yeah. Um, Broke as fuck. But, uh, so we came up with this system called Just Points, um, which had, as Joanna mentioned earlier, the dual meaning of being nothing but points, but also... Fairness points. points. Sorry, or well, fairness, but I mean justice here. Like, I was right, you know. And this is, this is how we get into this, yeah. right? It is that what struck me at the time was that I really enjoy having arguments. That was the thing I really enjoyed. Being right was less important to me than it was important to you. And Which um, is probably why she was wrong all the time. And and uh, as that became more apparent, 
we needed some way to satisfy your desire to, to be prove. recorded as right. As right. And my desire to not pay money right. <laughs> or or otherwise have to deal. So, so what just we would points do. is it's fairness and right. that it recognizes that you are correct. Right. Um, but it's also just points. Right. So, it's not so the system is that you would, depending on how big or important, you know, how high you felt the stakes were, you could bet between one and five. One and five. Oh, yeah. Five was like really serious. Um, and then sometimes we'd bet on things that like nobody could like. Yeah. For example, we once bet that we were playing a game of Scrabble with a third person and we once bet that this third person would take the space that one of us really wanted. Obviously, there was no way for either of us to know that that was true. Yeah. So we just like threw away one JP on it because yeah. you can do that and it's fine. And he took the space by writing like tits or something. Bra. <laughs> Bra. It was raw. And he knew it was going to be totally <laughs> ridiculous too. Uh, and it was like no points. Yeah. I mean, I think it was dumb. He is like not it one was points, but the other two are one. Um, so this, so, and when I say we bet these things, I don't mean like we, ha it's not like money where like you win a dollar and I lose a dollar. It wasn't zero sum. The points yeah. were coming out of nowhere. Out of nowhere. So, yeah. I, so anyway, so we'd accumulate points and I would say after doing this for maybe six months, some checking point, you know, maybe a year, I think I had 23, somewhere between 23 and 27 points and Joanna had one and a half. Maybe, and maybe a half. two and a half. I mean, so, is it, the, so, so the, the, the system accomplished from my selfish perspective, accomplished its goal by around then being like, yeah. okay, I was and I think, I think, uh, arising from that system, the second thing that came out of that is the question of the nature of a JP bet is that it has to be something that is... There has to be something at stake. Well, there has to be something at stake, and it is usually about data, right? So you can't really ask a philosophical question. We'll be talking about how much we love data in a later segment of this podcast. Data! That's neither here nor there. Um, right, but so you, it has to be... You can't, can't be a philosophical question about the universe, right? It has to, by definition, be something that is that there can be an answer to. Right. And so when faced, when we came back and was like, okay, Joanna, uh -huh. let's, sh I mean, you see here now that I am right most of the time. Like, these have been empirically improving. And what did you say to me, Joanna? Uh, I, I, well, I don't remember my, my exact words, but the gist was that you were right about logistical things and logistical things don't matter relative to yeah. philosophical yeah. Basically, yeah, you were right about, and I'm right about things that matter. Yes, that right. I'm, I'm right, You're right about, about logistical things and I'm right, right. about things that matter. Right. Yeah. Yeah, um, that sounds like me. So, you know, the, it, it got me halfway there. But seriously, yeah. But um, but we haven't even talked about so, what you do with JP. Exactly, exactly. And I will also say, perhaps in my pseudo defense, um, over time I've become less concerned with being right. And now I only care a fair bit about being right instead of, you know, being willing to jump off a cliff to prove that I was right, which was more or less what I was like in college. Yeah, yeah, um, you have come a long way. I would say uh, you care you care more about not being wrong than you care about being right now, mm -hmm. which is actually two different things. Mm -hmm. Correct. Which is convenient because I'm actually never wrong. So it's not something I have to worry about that much or really spend I'm much time on. You are, just stop talking. I'm switching um, to beer. I, I started, <laughs> in fact, um, in college, I mean, really just around the, I mostly did. I started talking about the right man's burden and just how. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> we can never put this on the air. We're talking about that. You know, we cannot put this out we can't, there. We can't put that out there? We can. Okay. But we but just it, have to disclaimer. A disclaimer, disclaimer. We're um, assholes. Yeah, no, yeah. I, used to it. Yeah. Well, no, we no, no. That, 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 makes, that makes it sound like we're burning it. We both believe, believe in restorative justice. Restorative. We do. Um, I think. What's restorative justice? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. What are we restoring? This, I think, well, I, I mean, restor it's a 
there's a question as to exactly what rehabilitating. I think restorative justice with the idea of recognizing inequality in the world and doing things to make it equal. Restorative is a little bit of a weird word because it's not like it was never it was never equal, right? But the idea that you know, for instance, you know, you would make the Native American population have more of the egalitarian structure, you know, than they did before the white people came, you know, and so things like reparations, affirmative action. Various things. I mean, oh. th- th- I mean that's fairly straightforward way. That's in the realm of race. There's lots of forms. So the idea of restorative justice is, I think, contrasted. This this term I think maybe predates social justice, but it's more specific. It's contrasted with punitive justice, where the point of punitive justice is to make someone suffer, and you know maybe that causes. That's interesting know, because I would think of it as being today is being more like a combination of punitive and rehabilitative justice, right? Where you're trying yes. specifically to um, help a disempowered population at the expense of an empowered population. Usually, but not always. So, for instance, if you think of, like, the famous um, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, like, that's also restorative justice, and that's maybe a more classic example of that. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, Yeah. well, I think, you know, I wonder if restorative is is sort of idealistic in the sense that what you're restoring is... Is a, a, a sense of right, 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 right. It's, it's almost balance. restorative in the holistic sense, right? In the holistic yeah, yeah, sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a side thing. We um, have not talked about what you do with JP yet. Yeah. Oh boy, there's never going to get anywhere in this thing. Okay, um, so JP, how many, how many minutes has it been? So we're at half, thirty-two minutes. Oh, we have time. Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm not worried about that. It's mean like, well, I don't know. I don't know how editing's going to work. We're talking. You're going to hear us talk about a lot. You can about, edit out the whole part about restorative justice. Okay. Um. I will also you should say, just leave me in there saying edit out the whole part of restorative justice. Just this, okay, that sounds good. And while we're here, I was going to say that um, not only we can say, oh, this is a window, window into our friendship, blah, 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 but also we've never done a podcast before. You'll be shocked to learn. So, we've never done a podcast so before. This is also... Um, but you're charmed, right? Yeah, this that is person. also, you'll, you'll see into a process about how two librarians with master's degrees struggle to operate uh, a single microphone. Uh, it looks and things, fine to me. It like looks that. quite operable. <laughs> Where were we? Spending JP. Like you talk about that. Okay, JP. Spending JP. So it's all very well to you know accumulate points and be like, haha, I have this many points. But we also wanted the points to have some value, and we wanted them to have non-monetary value for various reasons. And so this next part is a little bit tricky to explain because straightforwardly put, JP, you could spend JP points to get somebody to do something that they didn't want to do. However, the caveat to that very creepy sounding sentence is that, you know, the other person has a veto and it's non-monetary, but also non-sexual. You know, we made jokes, but it was not along the lines of something that, you know, it was about... Uh, it's about, it's about um, expanding your horizons. It was about expanding your horizons, and mostly it was about consuming different kinds of media, although I think at one point Dylan was really grossed out by a dirty keyboard I had, and he spent JP to get me to replace my desktop keyboard. So it can be like, it can be a range of things. Uh, it can be read this book, see this movie, try this activity, and usually it is a response to the other person being like, eh. I've thought about it. It wigs me out a little bit. It's slightly outside of my comfort zone. And then the other person being like, okay, so that's a good thing to spend JP on. This would be good for you. Right. Less, eat, less eat so then. Right. Yeah. Eat your veggies. Sort of a situation. Um, and I think, you know, from my perspective, that made the game intriguing, right? Like, so it wasn't just a, a question of who's right 
more of the time, right? So to me, that question is boring. Um, and it's probably partly boring because I lose so often. Yeah. Um, you know, so for me, there had to be something that was that compelled me to be yeah. to even participate or care. And I, so and I, I think, think that was it. We came so. up with this in the second year of college. This was 2008, 0809. And I think the system went, you know, we continued using it after college. It probably went fairly steadily till about 2012. Around 2012, 2013, we start trailing off and. Yeah. We've been pretty intermittent about betting JP and almost never used it. it. Yeah. Because it, it's hard. To, it's a thing that was designed when we were actually around each other on a regular basis. It's hard to do it distance. It's hard to remember to do it. Oh, um, should, should we, should we, um, should we uh, mention how it is that we are talking to each other when you live in Brooklyn and I live in Sacramento? Yeah, I'm, so we're we're on Whidbey right now. It's an island in the, how do you say it? The what sound? The Puget Sound. The Puget Sound. I don't know how to pronounce that. Well, I didn't know how to pronounce that G. And uh, so. Where's the Puget Sound? Right about, I don't know, it's near Seattle somewhere. Right In Washington State. Up right about twice, twice a year for a week. Um, I usually visit Dylan and we used to come here a lot more because Dylan used to live in Seattle. Mm-hmm. And his parents live on Whitby. We're at his parents' house right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now he lives in Sacramento, California. But Sacramento, California is not the most temperate place on the planet in the middle of July. Um, so we thought we, we have been considering doing summers on Whitby just because it's an island. It's cooler. Yeah. Um, and we don't know what we're going to do in the future. But this we're, we're sitting right next to each other right now. For the for at least the first episode. Of yeah. This future episodes of this podcast. Our goal is to try to do it monthly. And we will um, have to try to whip Skype and other telecommunication things into shape so you can get decent audio quality, etc. But right now we're here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's correct. We are on Libby and we are presently, what we're thinking about now is we have this JP system. It's a great, it was a great system. It worked really well when we lived near each other, but we need to sort of rejigger it. To I love that word. Rejigger? Rejigger. Okay rejigger it to uh to accommodate um being on the other side of the country and what does that look like and you know you don't want to give somebody something that feels like homework right so that's another thing and then it's like both of us are very busy i love giving people things that feel like homework well one of us does not like receiving (laughs) things that feel like homework um that yeah but so you know we're both extremely busy um with our various things we have but who isn't I mean, when was the last time you talked to somebody and said, I'm not busy at all? I know. Right? So, so we have to come yeah. up with something. Um, and one thing we thought about, I know that one thing that came up is just this idea of creating curated lists, right? So I think one of the things I thought about possibly spending JP on was getting you to make a list, a curated list about homecoming according to what you think of homecoming as, which sort of it was a, sort of a multifaceted thing where... You know, it was an interesting media list, but it also reflected on you specifically and wasn't um, generic, right? Mm-hmm. It's not something I can open a magazine, a themed list, right? It, had, mm-hmm. it was more personal than that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was one possibility. Um, but we also uh, haven't been betting as much. Yeah. So we have we have the dual the dual issue of both how do we acquire and how do we spend JP? Yeah. Acquiring, we're still figuring out. Um, and I say this logistically not to be mean. The problem with the original system is that Joanna didn't really have a system for generating JP. Maybe now, and now she has a library degree, so I'm sure she's right about it. No, 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 no. Now I have like 
How much JP do I have right now? You have like nine. You have I like nine. You got right? some. You got some real. So, in the, so I get. I, I earn like about one JP a year. Yeah. That's about my average. So, so if we're doing a monthly podcast, though, that's not. This is not a sustainable system. No, it isn't. Um, so there's that. How do we generate JP? And we could we could you know add to the ways rather than making there be one specific way. So we can keep the original. Yeah. Bet system and add more onto it. So we were bet. That's something we need to figure out, Joanna. I think if we talk on this extensively on air, this podcast is going to fall yeah. into a rut. So you want to? Well, we will let you know in episode two what we figured out. Does that seem? Does that seem reasonable? Yeah. Okay. Um, so that's JP. What do you want to? Oh, so uh, then we have a little segment that'll be discussion topics of the week. Um, we're still figuring out our segments because again, first podcast, but it's like you know, time keeps moving forward. Time keeps on trucking and stuff happens yeah. and we often talk about that stuff and we are going to interesting individuals is this gonna be intolerable like i'm being sort of jokey like my ego's not that big but i'm just like maybe i don't know i think there's a possibility that it will be intolerable but we will both still love it which okay. is what really matters. okay yes the okay so our podcast is called A Possibility of Opinions, and one of the discussion topics today is how nobody seems to understand the function of the Supreme Court in constitutional law. Yeah. Or I would say perhaps willfully misunderstands and or doesn't care. Like, I don't think, I think, you know. It's not that you think people are dumb. It's that you right, right, care. right. Well, it's not just dumb, but like, I, it's not, I don't think people are that dumb. Because the thing is that in the United States, there is compulsory education, and, you know, the vast majority of people will go through high school and have to take an American government class. And it's not, they're not going to remember everything out of that class. But if there was, like, one thing that's drilled into you, like, as a second grader, is like, there are three branches of government. And, you know, most people have an idea of what the legislative and the executive okay. and the judicial branch do. I think sometimes people, there's a little bit of a fine grain between legislative and executive in terms of who has what power and how and why that's in a portion that way. It, sometimes it seems a little arbitrary, but the judicial branch is the one where you have the clear divide because both the executive and the legislative branches are democratically elected in theory and by extension responsive to the population of the United States in a semi-direct manner um, in theory. I say in theory not as like some weird conspiracy vote reading thing, but just because one a future topic of discussion will probably be about uh, how democracy functions in the United States. But, but there are, but they're part of the democratic system that we have. Um, whereas the judiciary is explicitly not. There are some localities that elect their judges, but generally speaking, federal judges and, of course, the Supreme Court being the ultimate federal judges are not, right? We don't have a vote as to who our favorite person is to be Supreme Court justice. We don't, yeah. Uh, and the reason it's designed like that is that that's not their job because the reason we directly elect our legislators is that their job is to instantiate the will of the people. That is, you know, and maybe sometimes they'll try to use their judgment. Maybe the will of the people is to elect someone who knows more than they do and use their judgment. But, you know, ultimately, if you don't please your constituents, you will get voted out. your office, yep. Um, Whereas the judge's obligation is to the law. And if a law is really unpopular, that is not the judge's problem. They are supposed to interpret and enforce the law. And the Supreme Court, of course, uh, uniquely deals with constitutional law. You know, that's, that's, yes, the Supreme Court deals directly with constitutional law as an example of an unpopular argument that 
the, the question about a law and respecting a law, mm -hmm. um, when separate but equal happens, mm -hmm. um, there were some people, uh, the person I'm thinking of off the top of my head right now is a rent, mm -hmm. but there were others who thought that the law said separate but equal, and it was separate but it wasn't equal. So the solution was to, to enforce the equal part of separate but equal, right? Mm -hmm. Not to integrate. Mm -hmm. um, and that would have respected Per this, you know, the, the argument yeah. was that would have respected the law, even if it was an unjust law, it wasn't the obligation of the courts mm -hmm. to say that this law was just or not. Right. That was the but, but the court ultimately concluded in Brown versus Board of Education that that was literally impossible, that it was not possible in the society we live in to have separate but equal, and that's why that whole framework was. And some people, and some modern. people, their, their, their argument against it wasn't separate but equal is ethically wrong, right? right? Their argument was that separate but equal is is unequal, which is different right. than the ethics argument. Right, right, right. right. That what you, and, and we get, I mean, we don't get too into the weeds here because it's not, judges are not robots and not pretend to be yeah. robots. They generally do invoke ethics that involve society-wide things, but even those are generally building off of sort of common law base ground of society. And precedent. And, pre and precedent. And precedent having a really big thing. And otherwise... Precedent, yeah really focusing on what what does the constitution say and how has it previously been understood to say what it says it's pretty straightforward and um the reason we're talking about that today is that uh as you probably know if you have not been living under a rock there is a impending opening on the supreme court uh president trump will nominate somebody he did he did it. he did not just nominate somebody well did he nominate them or did he announce who he was going to nominate Oh, he announced who he was going Right, to because it's a yeah, whole yeah, formal yeah, process. Right. Um, but that person will go through the Senate, and, you know, generally what's going to happen is the Republicans, regardless of this person's issues, will be like, uh, we think they're great because they're politically conservative. And the um, Democrats, regardless of this candidate's strength, will be like, this person is, uh, you know, too conservative. We're conser concerned that they will uh, infect the court with conservative ideology. And, uh, you know, there's some... Obviously, some concerns with previous uh, the Merrick Garland situation, and everything, but that's it's getting a little too weeks, and and it rubs this whole thing. This is a little bit of a of an old man, right? Anyway, the whole coverage of it rubs me the wrong way because it is treated in the news and in discussions uh, that you see in social media, or whatever, as if the exact same way we treat the presidential election. It's all talking about a person's ideology, a person's beliefs, a person's policies, and that's not how judges work. Right, and I think what's really important to note about that is that it matters how you approach it because that's that has a lot to do right. with how it how it actually how it actually because historically, what the job the Senate's job in the confirmation process is you you the president would put someone up and you say, is this person qualified? And the reason we have that is so they don't just sit, get their favorite uncle. And stick them on the Supreme Court who has no judicial background whatsoever, right? Mm -hmm. um, Bush actually tried to do something sort of equivalent uh, during his administration, nominate you know, like some, you know, person that he really liked who was not qualified. And but even in that case, mm -hmm. it wasn't the Democrats who shut it down. The Republicans said this person's not qualified. What are you doing? And it was withdrawn, and they got, um, I think Roberts was the was the replacement. And so historically, that has been the case where you you fight over qualifications. You get a little bit of moral character. But that's just it. Or can you make good, um, you know, intellectually sound, thoughtful legal rulings and kind of where these bitches? What kind of legal mind yeah. do you have? Yeah. Right. And, you know, then we start we start getting a little bit into the personal political. Like, yes, judges do have ideologies. Yes, those do determine their decisions. But it's that's, you know. Not alone. That's it's not alone. Right. And the executive branch can worry about that. 
if the executive branch, you know, wants to nominate someone who's more in line with their way they think about things, well, that's that's kind of the system as designed. But the job of the legislature is to say, is this person qualified? Obviously, it, there have been various points in time where this system has tripped up, uh, most notably in the case of Merrick Garland, who was nominated by Obama and who was pretty much universally agreed to be a qualified justice, but uh, could not get a hearing because the Republicans were concerned that he was essentially a centrist and not a, well, they said liberal, but they really meant centrist and not a conservative. The Democrats then punched back with Gorsuch, who again was widely considered to be a qualified judge who, you know, who had put in the time and displayed the understanding of law to be a, to, to do that job. Uh, and I think got two or three Democrat votes. And so at this point, the process is just, it's just like passing a bill. It's just like voting for a president, at which point it is at best redundant and at worst essentially destroys the system because the judiciary requires people to have faith in it that is separate from their faith in their elected officials. The idea of the judiciary is that it's a check on the elected officials. So even when you have a bad government or even when people are in power, that you don't like and don't respect, the judiciary is there to kind of keep things stable, to respect people's civil rights and to make sure that people's civil rights are respected, right? So to enforce the, constitutional so rights. So when the Supreme Court becomes as partisan or the right. or the understanding of the Supreme right. Court is as partisan as the legislature. Then there's no faith in the Supreme Court's decisions. That's right. And the, there's an underlying yeah. philosophy here, which I think is really important to think about. And that is that there's basically two ways to to approach any given system, right? And one is to say, okay, how are we going to game the system, mm -hmm. right? How are we need to be smarter than the system and know better than the system, right? And as soon as we decide to do that, we begin to redefine what the system is, yes, right? Whereas the other possibility is to use the system as it is intended to be used, mm -hmm. and it only in that ma only in that way can we have the system as that it is want. intended yeah. to be used, right? Um, now, that's not, that's not to say that we can never reform the system, that it is above reform, right. anything like that, but what you can't do is is assume that you are above a system that you that you are right. in fact part of. Yeah, and and, it's, and of course, one, thing that, one of the first things you see, and we're seeing this with a lot of um, authoritarian governments taking power around the world, particularly uh, in Europe, is one of the first things they do is um, get rid of the independent judiciary. This has happened to a significant degree in India and Pakistan. Uh, it has happened in Poland, where they've basically instituted rules to get rid of most of the judges who are, who are right? And there's a reason to that, that they are lining the partisan government with the judiciary, which is the one part of it that is not partisan and is keeping them in check. It's kind of one of those situations where sometimes one side wins and one side another side wins, but really everybody's losing at the end of the day. Yeah, I think so. And it it actually uh, sort of bleeds into the next topic of conversation, right? Which is how we think about what happiness is. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason why I think the two things are connected is that, I know I, I, I talk about this a whole lot, but there's a division, a really important division between the experiential and the administrative, right? Mm -hmm. So how we administrate our lives and how we experience them. And I think that really matters because when we, th especially when we think about it, right? Because one of the big confusions I think that right now is causing a lot of people a lot of distress is the, is this idea that the way that 
various demographics that they belong to are treated or are administrated in the system is the same as what they experience. And that's just not true. And it would be bad for everybody if it was, right? Mm -hmm. So if me, like, join it for a price, if I'm uh, a liberal and a woman... You have a very long name. ...a Jew, um, you know, if that's all I am, right? Mm -hmm. I am just these categories of of identity, then I don't really exist, right? Right, by definition, you're interchangeable with everyone else who has those same... Same right. I others. am I am any Jewish American woman, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, any jaw, if you will. So, <laughs> so Is that an actual term that people use? No, I just made it up. Okay. Um, I was thinking Jewish American princess, and right. then I went to Jewish American woman, and gotcha. then jaw. Gotcha. Jaw. Uh, jaw. Right. So, so it really matters that you that one is able to distinguish personal preference from um, from sort of administrative decisions, and that can get really, really. Uh, controversial and provocative, right? So, for example, um, there's a difference between policy around um, protected classes and the personal decisions of people and what they think, right? So, it comes down to uh, when you're thinking about... Do you want to give the Boy Boy Meets World example? You give the Boy Meets... I don't remember what the Boy Meets World is. I I never saw that show. What example did I give? It involves Topanga and going to college... Oh, that was on the internet. Okay, yes. So there's a post going around. There's a post going around. That God, this was like a year ago on yeah. Facebook. Um, which, which, in, which in in social media terms is like last century. century. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Topanga, who is a character on Boy Meets World. Oh my God, some of you out there know what Boy Meets World is, but it it breaks my heart to realize that many people who are adults now, who are 18 years of age, might not know what. Boy Can Meets you World tell is. us what Boy Meets World is? It was a TV show. It was a TV show about what. About high schoolers and then college students. Okay. Um, but so Topanga and her boyfriend Corey. Um, are they main characters? Uh, yes, they are. Um, Corey is going to is is not as good of a student as Topanga is, um, and as a result, Topanga is thinking about going to a college that is worse than a college that she could get into because Corey will be there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's this. Facebook post going around about how, you know, Topanga should do Topanga and she shouldn't go to uh, Corey's college because it's not as good and she could do better because she had been a better student in high school. And then was the argument that, that the the writer the writing of the show was well sorry, you keep going, I'm gonna interrupt you. Go ahead. Um I don't I don't remember the specifics, but what I do remember is that my comment on it was that like if Topanga was really gonna do Topanga, then she should do what she wants to do, right. not whatever we think is the most important thing. Not what society expects right? her to do. So based she, on the role. if she is seventeen years old and she's, you know, been dating Corey for this many years and she she believes that she is in love and that she would like to be near him, right? That is a priority she has. Um, it is actually less feminist to be like, she shouldn't make that decision um, than to let her make the choice that she wants to make, right? Mm-hmm. And that is the, so that was a question. And then secondly, you know, sort of bound up in that is at what point do we consider somebody adult enough that their decisions, you know, are legitimate regardless of what right, they Right, because are, we right? do definitely make decisions on behalf of children. children. Yeah, yeah, right, all the time. So that, so that was like, that's an, but that example is right, like, you know, from an administrative standpoint, when you think about why do we give women more choice instead of less choice, it's so that they can empower themselves in ways that they were previously unable to do. But from an experiential standpoint, it is sometimes 
still the best choice for an individual to choose something that to, to make a choice that what that may have once been their only option right mm -hmm. and that doesn't necessarily mean anything about the system um but it is it is good to remember that you don't have to choose like you don't have to choose the thing that is the most progressive you don't have to choose the thing that is the most traditional you don't have to make a lot of times people think that the choice is based on some external system of evaluation. It isn't, right? Like the personal experience. When you're mm -hmm. making a choice on your own behalf, it's okay to be selfish. It's okay to be irrational, right? Because mm -hmm. what you're choosing is what makes you the happiest mm -hmm. and not anything else. So how do I be happy again? So I think, you know, in summary, that the argument here is that you want to, you don't want to confuse um, social justice with happiness. Oh, okay. I think that's it. You know, that they're actually two different things. And that, you know, personal preference and personal experience is not an expression of, of it's not virtue signaling. It's, if, if it is virtue signaling, then you're probably unhappy. I was going to say, this, this is, I actually originally thought when you mentioned discussing this on the podcast, you were going to discuss the distinction between being happy and being content. Which I know is something that we've talked about. Yeah. Well, if you get into that, you you're maybe having a conversation about how what words mean. Yeah. What words mean, and like you can you can generally be content, and if there's a difference between happiness and contentment, then there's no permanent condition, right? Right. Um, but but the reason why I bring up the social justice, the system versus mm -hmm. the demographic versus personal is that it ties right into this what we're talking about with the Supreme Court. Right. Is that again? It's about. At some point, you have to decide that you're opting in, right? right. You're opting in. You're not going to stand back and know better than everything around you. Mm -hmm. That you're going to step into it. You're going to lean in, as they say. So um, She actually leaned in when she said that. I did. You know, um, yeah, that, that's the, like, and I think it matters. It particularly matters today. Um, and so, yeah. Uh, and in and, and one, you know... It's, it's complicated by the introduction of lots of new ideas about how to think about identity um, mm -hmm. and a, a, a much broader discussion of what's acceptable. Um, and it's just really important to remember that regardless of what kinds of language and what kinds of ideas you have at your disposal um, and what various factions or people or the world is, is indicating that it will support now, at the end of the day, what matters is that you feel like you are expressing yourself and mm -hmm. not any really not anything larger than that mm -hmm. um and everything else comes with it right so i i know that like i have a um it's gonna, it might sound a little bit selfish but this whole idea that like i could be abstracted into something that is just you know a demographic you know mm -hmm. an idea that isn't even really me right that someone could get very very vocal and angry on behalf of me, air quotes, when really they're getting uh, vocal and angry on behalf of demographics, right? Mm -hmm. And then in that equation, Joanna Tova Price gets totally lost. Mm -hmm. That to me is is as tragic as the other way around, you know? Where, Though to be fair, there's really where, no way you're not going to be places and not get totally lost. Where Joanna Tova Price is... Um, Right, so so we we're very we're we're very used to thinking of it thinking of it the other way around, right? So like where where because of my demographics I am I am forced to disappear. The other is also true, right? If you if you come out strong on behalf of my demographics but you ignore who I am, I 
I am just as obscured. Mm-hmm. And and either way, you have yourself a tragedy. Mm-hmm. In my opinion. Hands mm-hmm. up. That's the spiel. There might be opinions on this show. There might be. There's a possibility. There's a possibility. Yeah. So, um, as you can see, Joanna and I are very interested in uh, societies and how they're constructed. And the governments that they make. And how they're constructed. And we have been watching a TV show that's about this. But but before we talk about that specific TV show, I want to talk about TV and... Okay, she kind of spoiled it, but whatever. Talk about TV in general. Not in general, like the history of the medium, but how do we do television. So, So, in college, as noted, we did not really want to party. uh, Me even less than Joanna. And so we tried to... Keep going. Were you going to correct my grammar? No. Okay. Um, Why would I do that? I don't know. Am I the kind of person who corrects people's grammar? Yes. (laughs) Um... And, but, you know, we like to not just talk all the time, despite what this podcast seems like. So we were like, let's watch some TV series. Um, we ended up watching... Did we go through all... No, we just watched Angel. Did we... we did none of Buffy. We did only Angel. That's right. Because so you we... had seen Buffy too right, recently. Right. So we had seen... Uh, Joanna and I both grew up watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the TV show. Uh, but Joanna had never seen Angel, which is the spinoff. Yes. And so we went through that, uh, really enjoyed it. And it is a little bit more adult than Buffy it is, is yeah. honestly. Uh, by Buffy the Vampire Slayer is literally a show about children, most of it's run. And Angel is High schoolers. Who are legally children. And Angel is a show about a guy who's 200 years old. So, you know, definitely. I mean, I, I, I agree, you're right that it's more adult, but I would say that comes with the territory, ideally. Okay. In my defense, I think a lot of people who watched Buffy and were the right age to watch Buffy also watched Angel. Yeah. You know, it's true. I don't think Angel ever had anything like the same audience, though. And certainly not it was the same cultural impact. than Buffy yeah. in a number of places. It was, yeah, and, and in some ways, it was more conventional in terms of it was um, inhabiting genres that were more conventional for television, like uh, the, the murder mystery, the film noir the you know sort of semi-action suspense thing whereas Buffy was combining high school drama shows and campiness and comedy and horror and drama uh, in ways that were very unusual we love both of them anyway we watched Angel uh then we watched Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex we watched Cowboy Bebop Cowboy Bebop and we kept doing this then uh when Joe and I started visiting with each other apart from miniseries and various things we made the questionable decision to watch all seven seasons of Xena, Warrior Princess. We did, though. We finished We them. did, and we did it. And, and How many this, years did that take us? Four, maybe. Um, and this matters, because the thing with Xena is that there's a lot of it. We're talking like 140 episodes, something. It starts off pretty inconsistent, pretty campy, and it really is walking the line between like the good kind of camp and the no, this is just stupid level of camp. It slowly gets better, starts becoming more consistent around seasons two, three. You know, four is a bit inconsistent, sort of solid, and then five, six, seven are pretty painful. For me, Joanna liked it better better than I did. Um, but we did it, and there's times where I like, we talk about how it's hard to have a friendship long distance, and there's a lot of things that you'd like to do if you, you know, lived around the block from each other that don't really make sense. But I come up with these aspirations, like, we're going to do this together, and how you do that together in two weeks a year is maybe not that clear but i'm like if we can get through all seven seasons of xena we can do anything it's kind of it's kind of how i think about we're it we're taking over the world i'm like i'm not ki- i'm not kidding like and if that sounds like like watching tv is not much of an accomplishment you put yourself through all seven seasons of xena buddy and you come back to me and tell me 
Well, you know, most of Xena was fine for me. But the parts of it that I really can't stand, I would say both in Buffy actually and Xena, is the stuff that's like potty humor gross. That, like the oh. smelliness, the, you know, when they make, you know, jokes about that. That is not a, a large portion of either of those. Right, exactly. Really, Everything okay. else okay. I can, yeah. I can for deal me, with. For me, it's when a show. Uh, romantic awkwardness. Uh, yeah. For yeah. me, it's when, it's when a show, both of them have to uncommon that they start in a fundamentally camp genre. And they're smart camp at their best, Buffy more so than Xena, but but both both can do it. And that lends itself to a certain level of comedy and playfulness. Then they decide they want to have some drama to sort of counterbalance things out, and that's fine. But over time, both shows become increasingly self-serious and increasingly competent in and their serial. And serial and increasingly confident in their own dramatic chops and their need to tell a hyper dramatic storyline in which every episode feeds into the next, which uh, it, which is called a soap opera. We've had these for actually predates the medium of television. And I would say that in general, soaps are not really my thing. But if I was the type of person who really likes soaps, I probably would rather watch General Hospital or something that's built from the ground up to do that. Yeah. And I think also best suited when I think about the relationship of camp to a serial drama, yeah. I would say it's best suited in a feature film yeah. as opposed to a television series. Right. Because the problem with a television series is that most dramatic events have to be undone at some point exactly and in a film that is it, it, right yeah um, and it's not so dramatic if you can just well, and, and they, right and they and they don't they don't actually have to be that's just the the commercial audience restrictions we place like in some places they generally you can do short series in which anything can happen because there's no season two or you can do something where you're like you're willing to psycho actors and do but so things. something like uh, get sack right yeah. where they have those committees and yeah. you, there's an arc and they yeah. already know what it is yeah is that Works. Get the benefits of the feature film right. without being a feature film because it has that same contained. Yeah. This is what we're paranoia agent is another good paranoia agent is another good yeah yeah yeah. yeah. Um, but there's something I mean, you're noticing that we're mostly mentioning things that are not American because we're not that good at that here. Again, mostly just for financial things. I well, think, you want to get into um, high quality American television. I got you know we were at that bookstore yesterday. And there was that book by Noah Hawley. Mm. And while I was reading his description, I noticed that it said he also wrote for Bones. And the pilot of Bones is one of the best pilots I've ever seen in my life. Now, the show as a whole, you can say many things about. But that pilot mm -hmm. was really good. And it is hard to make a good pilot. It is. Pilot, so you're so playing off So I just, I was watching it again not that long ago. And, and, and I was taken tell, with Tell it. us, why did you originally start watching Bones? Did I tell you at the time? Because I don't remember. I'm pretty sure it's because it starred David Boreanaz of Angel, oh, and boy. you you were oh, you boy. were That's you were really embarrassing. you were Jones. How many years ago was that? I mean, a long time. Okay. You were Jones for Angel. We were out of Angel, and um, mm. I, yeah. But I really liked about Angel, and I think any series you get far enough into is like this. Like you get invested in the characters, right? You get invested in not just in the characters, but in the friendships, right? Mm -hmm. Did you feel kind of like you're part of something, correct? You know, and then just what this podcast is all about, friendship. Anyway, so starting, so we we've been bouncing around a few mini series in the Posadina world. We watched uh, Double Fine Adventure, which is one of the best oh, documentaries you ever made. See that. Well, um, if you like computer games, though. you know, I'd say if you are interested in the creative arts. And the act of making a complex thing from scratch, you should double find adventure is for you. Because it really what that's about is a it group is of inspiring. people. It's a group of people coming together with almost no idea what they're going to do and documenting the process from square one to making a complex computer game with enormous amount of trials and tribulations along the way. And I will say that one thing that's interesting about that documentary documentary series is that 
all you you root for all of the people in it, even as you say to yourself, huh, not really sure I could be friends with that person. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like there's a lot of personalities, but you really you just want them to succeed because right. they're so earnest. Right. You know, and they're so you know, it one of the things that you get into a lot when somebody claims they have a passion about something is a lot of talk, a lot of hot air, a lot of virtue signaling mm -hmm. relative to the to having the courage to be practical and commit lots of hours of work. Yeah. And this documentary really, really, I think, highlights the what it means to connect being very interested in something yeah. with doing a lot of work yeah. uh, to create something in that area. That said, I really think that if you are not – I really think it would very much help if you had some idea about some the culture of – yeah, specifically of graphic adventure games. Yes, true. Though I would say that in, they definitely talk about that a bit in the documentary. And I will say that I think a lot of people who don't play video games have... It's very easy to not take things seriously when you don't engage in them. You know? Um, like, right. I, 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 I don't play hockey. I don't watch hockey. I don't take hockey that seriously. So if you know? I was going to watch a whole series on something to do with hockey, the first thing I feel like I would have to do is I would have to find a way to take hockey seriously, yeah. which I currently do. But, but on the other hand, Sorry, if, you, if you were to actually, for some reason, sit down and watch that, at the end of that documentary, at some point in the process, you would, you would be taking it seriously because you would have learned a lot about the complexity of that thing. That's true. There is a certain point. I, I saw not that long ago, Neil and I watched a documentary about um, Anvil. Mm -hmm. which is a metal band that was around at the same time as many major ones and right. never made it, right? And we started watching that documentary. And you're like, I don't care about having I do not give one quarter of a shit, right? Like, that was my... I was like, oh my god. I mean, I was like, all right, I'll do this. But all, story, all stories about humans are at some level human stories. And by the end of it, I was like, okay, I'm still never going to go to a show in which, you know, <laughs> this is still not going to be my hobby, but at least I have a lot more... You know, at least I have a lot more empathy for it and for the people who are interested in it, right? So, so I do know what you're saying, but you still need a certain something. You know, in this case, that certain something was Neil, but you need something that will get you right because the world threshold. we're all we're drowning in television. That threshold, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, so we finally I've been think, kicking around this idea for years. So if you ask me what my five favorite TV shows were, I give you different answers every time, but there's a few that are pretty consistently in there. And one of them is Star Trek Deep Space Nine. For those who are not familiar with Deep Space Nine, if you don't know what Star Trek is, well, I guess we'll talk about that, but I can't help you. Um, but we're not watching Deep Space Nine. We're not watching, no, we're getting there. We're not watching Deep Space Nine. Joanna has never seen, as far as I know, you've not seen one single episode of Deep Space Nine, right? Probably as a kid. My dad loved Star Trek. Oh, really? So it's likely that, not as an adult and not in... But you might, but you might like tune in and be like, oh, I, I I've remember. I've seen this yeah. one, yeah. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so most Star Trek, uh, since the original version in the 60s to, uh, I guess, one that is currently airing called Discovery, the basic model is you have some people on a pretty powerful, self-sufficient spaceship which go around the galaxy exploring strange new worlds, discovering new life, boldly going where no, no one, one has, has gone, gone before. before. Um, I love the intro. And Deep Space Nine is a series that flips that around and puts a bunch of people on a space station. Who's the captain? And his name is Benjamin Sisko. Really? Yes. With the actor or the captain? The captain is named Benjamin Sisko. Huh. Most deep, so we'll get into Deep Space Nine, I mean, in like a million years, we'll talk more about it. But basically, um, I love it. It's a show that pioneers serial storytelling 
in a way that was not normal for television at the time and, and actually do, yep and actually does it better than most things because it starts off as an episodic show and over the course of its one run slowly transforms into a serial show but because when i say episodic yeah episodic 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 sawed off i get it okay but it always has its roots it is run by people who understand how to do episodic television and one of the issues that you have today is that with a lot of you know the made for netflix made for binging tv shows there's no distinction between them and a 12-hour movie that if you were to just watch one episode and stop it's not satisfying it doesn't have its own self-contained story it doesn't function so by it's itself binging it's material. it's just binging material um, but anyway so i would love to watch deep space nine with joanna but it'll happen i also really like next generation and unlike with deep space nine which i only rewatched really watched in, in adulthood i grew up watching next generation with my father it started airing in 1987 I started airing, which was when I was born. I think it started airing a couple months before I was born. And which ran. Came, next Gen came after Deep Space? No, before. Um, we'll get there. And it ran through 1994. Deep Space Nine launched in 1992. So they run against each other for two years. And it, you know, it's good, but it, but it has a little bit of growing pains and it just makes this executive nervous. Next Generation's a big thing. This is a really weird departure. So what they do is that as soon as Next Generation ends, they launch Star Trek Voyager which is another series about a bunch of dudes on a spaceship sailing all around the galaxy. Uh, so Deep Space Nine is the only one of the Star Treks to never be the only Star Trek on television. It's always running against another Star Trek. Um, and that basically gives it freedom. It's actually great because it gives it freedom to be weird and studio executives don't really care about meddling it but because they have some other standard error for the series. But Next Generation is, is a great show. It's a show that starts a little rough but, um, but gets better. And uh, the goal is for us over the course of our friendship to watch all seven seasons of Next Generation, which is, let me check my notes here. Oh, I didn't actually write that down, but I believe it's 176 episodes, I'm gonna say. Okay, 176, um, and, and they're all about, no, not yet. And they're all about 45 minutes long, give or take. And uh, then you have about 178 episodes of Deep Space Nine. Uh, same thing, about 45 minutes long. Um, and so what we'll do is we'll watch the first five seasons of Next Generation. Um, when we get to the overlap period, we'll start swapping, watching more or less in air date order, unless they're like two-parters or something like that, kind of jumping between these two. And there's a bit of overlap. There's okay. some spin-offs and stuff, not a lot. Um, and then once Next Gen and just, you know, sail along the Deep Space Nine train. Um, we, as noted... Why are we sailing on a train? Uh, because it's in space. And in space, there's no train distinction sail? between... Well, I mean, there's no gravity. So you put a train in space and you put a boat in space and it's the same difference, isn't it? It's not good. What? Trains and boats in space. I feel like they're not right Well, for well, Okay, it's actually on a space station. So you're all good. Okay. Um, so as we know, we, we go we do two weeks of vacation a year is the plan. Life changes. That may not uh, be constant, but that's the plan. Um, and the general calculations I did based on this, let's say we watch two episodes per day on vacation. Some days we do more, some, some days, days we do we less. Do more. I'd say generally we do more. Generally we do more. So, so, but let me, this was just the assumption I made when doing some math. Yeah. So we did two weeks of vacation a year, and we watched two episodes per day. Uh, that'd be 28 episodes a year, and it would take us uh, 12.64 years to finish all of Star Trek. Uh, how old are you right now, Joanna? 31. I'm going to be 32 next month. Okay, and I will, am 30. Um, so I would be 42 and you would be, uh, 44 excellent. when this, when this finished. This is just excellent. If 
you did not say have children or any other life-altering event which might make it difficult for us to spend two weeks a year watching a bunch of Star Trek. No, but we can share screen if we really That's have true. to. That's true. But yeah, I, I think I'm hoping in the future that we'll come up with some way to watch TV with each other distantly. Um, I mean, someone's probably going to be like, oh, you can do that. But like, it's not really the same if you're just like both watching it in a chat room. There needs to be some... I don't know. We'll come up with something. something we'll figure something out. Anyway. Um, but yes, if you watch more episodes a year, maybe it's only eight years or nine. Years. The point is that it's a long process. A long process. And... I'm someone, I don't like to leave things unfinished. Um, I was going through a rewatch of Buffy with a friend of mine once, and then also Angel, and stuff happened, and we, like, froze, like, 75% of the way through. That sucks. But that's uh, so what I like about this, and not just that I like Star Trek, that I like being able to rediscover this, that I like being able to watch it with someone else, but also there's something optimistic about this, about saying regardless of what happens in our lives, we will find a way, we will still be good friends for 12.64 more years. After that, we will not be friends anymore. Okay. But but until up to that point, we'll do that. Cool. Anyway, so we are currently, we have finished uh, the first season of Next Generation. We are, and we're about exactly halfway yeah. through the sec- second season. Um, so Joanna keeps talking about uh, data, but which I think is a librarian thing. Um, but I, I think we want to talk about Star Trek. We do. I'm, I'm talking about, shoot, what's the title? I, I, I want to say I, because you're because your mom. I want to say Vice Commodore Data, but it Lieutenant Commander. Lieutenant Commander. It's pronounced Data. It is not <laughs> pronounced Data. So one of the funny things is that, in, for what it's worth, uh, in the real world, it is pronounced Data, but for some reason in Star Trek they say Data. I don't know why. Um, anyway, Data. Yeah, know, it is. Uh, so you want to talk about Next Gen? Right, and Data, and so and you watched Next Gen some growing up, like me, with your father, like me. Um, One thing I noticed about Next Gen for me, which isn't usually true of other TV shows, is that the philosophical underpinnings of Next Gen are interesting enough to me that underpinnings, underpinnings. So that's like like there's something pining, yeah. Like like it's like like pining for the fjords, and usually you like that voice is under like the floorboards. You hear someone saying, "Hey." That's right. It is but, the under, but it is the it under. It is the under longing it is a longing right but but in but in star trek you're saying it's not under right is that what you're gonna say no no it is the philosophical longing beneath is uh oh my god (laughs) so annoying (laughs) what what i'm just saying stop making faces how can i shut up when i'm not saying anything well stop thinking things so loudly so many inappropriate things so loudly um whatever Philosophical longings underneath. Speaker, speaker, hee hee hee. Oh my god. Um, sort of, you know, override lousy writing. So for me, you know, if I'm watching Buffy or Angel, or I'm reading, sometimes I'm reading like a YA book, I'll come across a real clunker of a line, and I just I have to stop and be like, this is not good, and I am not inside the narrative anymore. But with next gen, the questions are interesting enough that bad writing doesn't necessarily yeah. throw me or bad acting. And to be clear, it's not like this show is just like always bad writing, bad acting. It isn't. Um, yes, it's underpinnings. I know. <laughs> um, and but like, well, what do you think? Like the first season's known as being fairly rough in this department, right? Uh, What's well, what I'm saying? Yeah. It is rough, but I, I. Um, it, did, it didn't really affect my experience of watching it. Now, it probably would if I watched it again. Because right. it would be the second time. Because, like, and the I questions, know all these ideas. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, as, but as, because it gives me a lot to think about, 
I care less that the writing no. is like and and one and I appreciate that because what that means is the show's taking risks, yeah. right? So and have you known? I don't know if this have good. you have you noticed in the second season the writing like starting to improve a bit? A little bit, not a lot. Not a lot. I, I would agree with that. I think people tend to there's kind of I mean as like next gen like everything has its apologists and one thing apologists really want to do is get you to a place where you can like something and because the first season is rough they're like. Instead of just being like the first season is rough, they'll be like, "Oh my god, the first season is so terrible!" But if you just get to the second season, it starts getting good. And people do the same thing with Buffy, and like with Buffy, I think the first season. Of Buffy part of is it great. is that they're apologists, but also part of it is that by the second season, they're used to it, yes. so it's no longer feels that foreign to them, and they really do. But what, what the second season, and this actually gets the analogy of Buffy here is interesting. What the first season is is really inconsistent. The 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 writing there's apparently a lot of issues behind the scenes with the production of writing which we won't get into here but what's definitely true is that episode to episode characterizations change people's jobs change they have like different head engineer every week um, tonally it's all over the place sometimes it's really silly philosophy sometimes it's like super camp the second season right. does a, bu- a much better job with Troy right and the second season really is much more consistent it says who are these characters what are they doing. How can we find a way for each and every one of them to be valuable to this crew and to the viewer? It does trying, justice to the characters. Trying to, and, and what it also does, it, the show has a very classic kind of A-plot, B-plot um, setup for almost all of its episodes. Where A-plot is like, there's a plague on the planet, and it's and there's something blowing up, and we have to save it. And B-plot is like, uh, you know, Wesley is taking a hard test, or Data gets a new hat. I mean, but you know, these more human elements. It's like off the ship, on the ship is often how that breaks down. Mm-hmm. Um, the second season does a much better job at balancing those, making them thematically tie into each other, um, and making them work, I would say, generally. And I think one thing that Star Trek does very well that a lot of sci-fi TV shows don't, even philosophical sci-fi TV shows, is it really does have a very honest look at at emotional interplay. So a lot of the things that make the show really great is that the characters um, experience and express emotions um, a lot, and they have these different mechanics for doing it. For example, Data is one such. Right? So he's who's an Data? You tell us about Data. Data is an android, um, and he's an android who is humanoid and has interest in um, in understanding what it is to be human. And as a result of that, there's a lot of conversations you get that it, it, it's a, a nice mechanic for, for a conversation about, is this emotion human? Why is it, why does it exist? Yeah. What is and, humor? Yeah. What is humor? And then you also have a kid by the name of Wesley Crusher, um, played by Will Wheaton. He's sort of infamous on the internet, but He's young, and yeah. what that and that's another tool. But we, for but we like at. him. We like Wesley, right? We like Wesley. Um, so I think there's this idea of Wesley as this sort of obnoxious irritant. There are some legitimate criticisms of him as sort of a Deus Ex Machina, which comes up a little bit later in the series. But I think there is a strain of science fiction people, which is sort of based in the hard sci-fi community, which is like very much like decisive action, men leading, you know, serious problems solved, and they don't like things that get in the way of that. And they don't like anyone bumbling, right? Well, the other thing about Wesley is in addition to bumbling, he lacks a certain humor, right? right. His character is He's very... incredibly earnest. Yes. So that's, though honestly, and in some other shows that might be annoying, but I think that works for Star Trek. Because one thing you do have in Star Trek is you have a hyper-competent captain and a hyper-competent first officer and a hyper-competent second officer, right? 
And these are people, they did not spring fully formed from the universe in this way. They got mm -hmm. there through long years of experience, which we don't see. And so Wesley is someone we see grow up and, you know, have this role of acting and saying right. and sort of acquire these skills. Um, and he also is a way that grounds the show's humanity in these like things like first love and these like very basic right. he, he has this mechanic because he's young. He has the mechanic of being able to talk about the the introduction of new ideas and new right. feelings like when you first encounter right. them as a person and star trek has these two poles which it, it's always had in theory but really um was often abstracted away in next in the first the original series and next run it's about what does it mean to be human and what is it aspirationally to be human what's why is it worth yeah. it being human how does one be a good human um and so one thing we see which and, 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 in, and in the original series that character is just spock spock is the person trying to figure out how to be human and what you know and in next generation we have data who's literally a robot trying to be human we have wesley who's a young human trying to be an adult human we have Worf, who's a klingon from another culture raised by humans trying to humans, humans um as the frankie say trying to fit into human culture but also preserve his own heritage and you know kind of read those things so you see that from a lot of different angles yeah and but then it's also aspirational about what it means to be a human and this gets back when i mentioned it earlier in, in the politics and government stuff is that um next generation is an explicitly utopian society in a way that's actually very rare in contemporary science fiction because most science fiction is like it's world like today but we have lasers and cyberpunk and you know whatever right which is all cool i actually or like a lot it's of, utopia but it's a dystopia but it's a dystopia right there's yeah. a lot of science fiction today is is often it's a paradox of on one hand often have an element of technophilia like oh look at all this super cool technology but also inherently cynical about it yeah um, I, I will say that i think that while there are a lot of things that are utopic about about star trek's human yeah expression of what human society is like the show itself is not utopic, right? Well, but it was, so, well, but but that has to do with with what perspective of the Federation in the universe we see. The idea is that the Federation is a is a largely utopic post scarcity society where people are treated equal, where everyone gets what they need, where people are supported in their own individual pursuit of happiness. The Federation is not the known universe, and what Starfleet does is serve as sort of the buffer between this internal, you know, mostly happy state. Which of course had its own politics. It's not you know completely perfect, but and the lawless, not lawless, the complicated world with its many cultures. Um, and of course, that's made more interesting by the Prime Directive, you know, which is where it says that the Federation does not interfere in the development of other cultures. So they, it's not about them going around and being like, we have these superior moral values that make us more developed as people. You know, you're joining the club. Yeah, and that's interesting. And there's a lot of places you can go with that. And of course, in over the series of seven seasons of that and seven seasons of Deep Space Nine, which take different um, approaches to this, it explores a lot of facets of that. Um, one of the things that later Star Trek struggle with is once you have done 300 hours of this stuff, there's not a lot of new rocks necessarily to turn over um, in this particular framework. But it is, it is very interesting. So we feel good about it. We're going to keep doing it. Star Trek? Yep. Yep. Um, oh, and can you tell me about what it is I'm not allowed to do? When we watch Star Trek. What aren't you allowed to do when we watch Star Trek? Uh, apparently skip the intro credits. Yeah. Yeah, no. Every, um, yeah, I just, the intro to Next Gen is my favorite part of Star Trek, and so I refuse to let Dylan skip the intro. Why do you love it so much? What's special about it? Uh, 
Picard's deep, sexy voice. It is Picard, right? Yes. Make that up. Yeah. Um, and I just like I just like the words. Uh, is, he, is he definitely in the the upper echelon of balding older men in terms of sexiness? I bet he would make the mutual. You know, Emma and I have that list of guys that we both find attractive. I bet he would be on that list. I have, I'd good, have to ask her. I have good that. news for you, which is that so in the when he filmed the show, he was in his early mid forties. I'd say early forties. Um, that show was thirty years ago, so now he's in his mid seventies. No worries. His girlfriend's like thirty five. So this is an achievable goal. I'm just saying, you know, something you make it happen. if something were to happen to his oh girlfriend. Oh my god. <laughs> that <laughs> and i think he lives in brooklyn does he really yes like he has I, a dog right yes and i think his girlfriend lives in brooklyn and um oh and, <laughs> that's cool. I, mean, I mean yeah so yeah honestly yes that yeah no um sorry patrick patrick stewart you sorry, are patrick stewart we we yeah we don't want to objectify you you are a marvelous actor and a great human being probably which is, no it's true one of the great things about star trek is that early on they they weren't entirely sure what to do with Picard's character because he's the captain and the, the fundamental tension with the captains is on one hand is utopian society. You want them to be emblematic of all the greatness the society represents. On the other hand, you have to make them interesting, right? And not just Mary Sue's. And when one thing that oh, makes... Well, I feel like what they did with Picard is they the challenge they threw in his path is between being ordinary and seeking out the things that make an ordinary person happy and being right. extraordinary, which is by definition lonelier. But, right, right. That he is really good with you know with logistics and leadership but there are some basic emotional things that he struggles with right how to hang out with children you know <laughs> as a, as a yeah he thing. and wes yeah but uh that scene we can talk about like spoilers oh yeah yeah uh so starting explanation um you can watch all of it on netflix on amazon you can buy it it's been out for a really long time spoiler if you don't words. want next spoilers for what is currently uh the first season and a half of next generation stop listening Right, so the scene where Wes asks to stay on the Enterprise, um, and um, the captain comes in, and they have a, a very joking conversation about whether Wes can stay, and it takes Wes a, a little while to realize that everyone's joking, and that of course he can stay. Yeah, I think that was an unusually social moment for Picard. It is. Usually he doesn't do that. Yeah. He's very straightforward. He's very... Um, and... But, but but this what we see with him as a show is that he is beginning to open up and find his own humanity. And I think you know the the scene in the Measure of a Man mm-hmm. where you know when they were writing it right. So Picard defends Data. Yeah. And um, Riker has to prosecute right? right. And Picard was could never be the character that does what Riker does. Right, Picard is never going to be the guy who makes the argument. He's he overly bound by his own principles. Yeah, exactly. He can't do it even for the right, even for right. for a good cause. He can't do it. Right. Whereas Riker can and does throughout the course of like when he has to go work for the Klingon vessel. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So that's a difference in character that's consistent. Yes. Remarkably so, given you know the episodic nature of the yeah. of, of the TV show. So, anyways. Um, but but I was going to say about Picard is they didn't really know how to write him. And one thing that they ended up relying on was Patrick Stewart, that he, as the actor, they were, he had a lot of ambiguity as to how he was actually playing this character. And so he would play it a certain way, take it certain places that were just more comfortable for him naturally. And then the writers started writing based on Patrick Stewart's performances. And it ended up in sort of a virtuous cycle where over the course of the series, everyone involved just says, 
Picard becomes more like Patrick Stewart, and Patrick Stewart becomes more like Picard. Yeah. That they sort of merge, and you end up with actually what's really a, a great human being. And of course, Pat, uh, Patrick Stewart is now known like does a lot of really social, legitimate social justice work. Um, it's always been sort of a voice for boosting various other people. It just seems, yeah. as far as anyone can tell, like a really upstanding lovely, dude. Upstanding dude. So Star Trek. So uh, we have a few more segments in the kind of media area. So there's some things that Joanne and I do together and really like together, like um, Star Trek. Uh, but we also have our own lives, and most of the time we consume our own media. One thing I really like about Joanna is that she doesn't play a lot of video games. I don't, sorry, I don't like that about her. But the, the, despite the fact that she doesn't play a lot of video games, she is interested, she is curious, she has a good mind for it when she does play games, and we've actually, uh, for about a year and a half, we had a little uh, games club. Games club, which where we have our own blogs and websites, and we'd write, we'd play a game, and then write letters to open letters to each other about mm-hmm. our experiences with the game and what we thought. Um, so a regular segment of this podcast will probably be Dylan's Games Corner because I play too many video games, and one of the things I do with myself is um, right now in video games, this idea of games as a service. Uh, is very popular that people will play this one game that goes on forever. There are multiplayer games generally. Um, whereas I'm someone who prefers to play 40, 50 games in a year. There are all sorts of different sorts, usually single player, usually self-contained. Different sizes. Yeah, different sizes. Indie. Indie, yeah. And so, um, yeah, I've been playing games since I was four, before I could read. Um, I've always just felt a natural kinship with the medium. There were times when I was younger where I was like, obsessed with games and be like no i don't want to go on a trip i don't want to leave my computer behind like there was always been my comfort zone i know that um you know that there's a very tired argument over how seriously a person should take gaming as a medium yeah um but maybe like two or three sentences about oh oh yeah just like oh god i don't barely think about this anymore but yeah but like i think this gets back into what we were saying with, with star trek is that we should take humanity seriously we should take life and the human experience seriously and at a most basic level, we should take video games seriously because they're a big part of so many people's human experience. What about Twitter? From should we take mo- Twitter seriously? Yes. In all seriousness, yes. Um, from a more formal standpoint, games are a distinct medium that do new and interesting things that other mediums don't. Um, doesn't make them better. I like books. I like movies. Obviously, obviously I like TV, all these other things. But um, they're distinct, and there's a lot of stones yet unturned in that medium. And one thing I really like about it is that every single year I play games that are like no games I've ever played before and challenge my very I- my very idea of what a video game can be. I actually have a little Steam curator, which I don't know if we ever can do this, post links on this podcast. We'll um, yeah, put it in there. Yeah, there's a bunch of different um, yeah. podcast hosting platforms yeah. that allow you to do So that. it's called The Game Librarian, and I basically highlight games. Not, not that they're not necessarily my favorite games, but ones that push the medium to new and interesting places. Yeah, um, and I think that another thing is that I mean, so one thing that Emma and I talk about a lot, this has come up recently for, for various reasons. You've been having a, a lot of discussions lately about what media represents in a culture. And one of the things that I think of, you know, this might be particular to me, but one of the things that I get from media is a sense of connection to people who are not me, right? So mm. I, if I see a movie that I really like a lot, I come out feeling more connected to humanity yeah. as a whole than when I walked in. Also true of generally cultural institutions, theater, blah, 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 yeah. blah, blah. Obviously, I have my own opinions, but what do you, do you think that a game can serve that purpose? Yes, there's actually a really loaded conversation that's been going on in this sort of games Twitter sphere lately about 
the ways in which games can and cannot let you walk in other shoes. There is there's been this argument about virtual reality specifically as empathy machines, as abilities to like literally put you in someone else's body, let you see things and that these are good and other people are like, no, that's not how empathy works. It starts getting into identity politics stuff. Right. Um, and I don't even necessarily mean that. I, I, know, I know you don't. I'm just saying it's sort yeah. of a general disclaimer. But, but I think absolutely. And I think I have the same experience with books. Um, I think that's one of the great things about nonfiction books in particular is that it takes you places. But video games to me, at a basic level, there there are a lot of things. One thing there are is they're free trips. I can go to play foreign places and, and have these sort of full sensory immersive experiences that I don't get elsewhere. There are challenges, of course. I'm someone with sort of a busy mind, and so it can be hard for me. Like, it's not that I don't have the attention span for a book. I do, but I do it for a while, and then there's part of my mind that starts to wander and think about other things, that it kind of is, like, hungry for information. And games allow me to have this part of my brain that's, you know, working on the puzzles and the challenges, and another part of my mind that's really engaging with the narrative, and another part of my mind that's appreciating the art and the music, you know, that all these aspects of the art come together. And I find that really satisfying. And I also find it, the enormous formal variety of it satisfying. That, you know, even though the novel has all this variety within it, it's more subtle, right? You, you literally look at a book on a table and a book looks like a book, uh, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Whereas video games, you can, I can show you just screenshots or a game in motion and they'll look completely disparate from one another. That we mean a lot of different things when we say video games. And I enjoy kind of sampling that, engaging the different subcultures. And uh, I think it now would be a good time to mention that, you know, uh, over the course of Dylan's career and his academic career, he has um, talked with a lot of different people in the industry. He wrote his bachelor's thesis on the history of narrative and video, video games, games, which was published his book. Right. Which what? Right. So, so I, I did, uh, I wrote for a site called Nightmare Mode, which had its moment in the sun doing sort of um game history articles and, and different takes on things. I've done I've done oral history interviews, as Joanna was, right. was talking about, for um, the Museum of Popular Culture in Seattle, Washington. Yeah, and so it's something I'm, I'm really passionate about. Um, that doesn't mean I think there are a lot of aspects of the broader gamer culture that I find uh, frust- frustrating, obnoxious, problematic, as we like to say today. Yeah. Sure. Um, but but for the medium itself, I kind of say this, when, when the times when the world, you know, because it's a lot of these days, where the world seems really shitty, when there's a lot of preconceived notions about things couldn't happen that do happen in bad ways, I can at least say every year, I can stand up and say video games are better than they've ever been. Not because one studio is making better games, but because more and more people are making more and more mm-hmm. kinds of games in ways that there's games for everyone. And if you think about media in the way that I do, yeah. right, that it is not just entertainment, right? That even Correct. even media that is entertaining is not just right. entertainment. You get the fact that video games continue to improve and that yeah. the medium is, you know, that people are challenging themselves right. to sort of stretch the boundaries of that medium. No you know, is not, is, is something worth thinking about. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, um, I think while we might not talk about it every podcast, when we get into conversations about like characters in Star Trek and like, you know, the role of video games or what a video game is doing, um, it is always also an example of what people can do, you know, and what they're accomplishing and what they're thinking about. And that, you know, it seems small, maybe relative to the large things that are 
causing all kinds of chaos right now and making some people very unhappy. Um, but uh, it's worth thinking about because when we think about how extremely capable people can be, yeah. you know, you know how much they can accomplish and how yeah. they can rethink something or come up with something totally brand new that has a connection to what we are capable yeah. of as a society. Our art is what keeps my faith in humanity alive. There you go. And yeah. so I just, just that's yeah. the preface. Now, you know. So I have, I have, I play a lot of different games, but there are certain types I play more than others. Um, Role-playing games, I play a good number of. Um, certain types of action games. Um, certain types of experimental narrative games. Uh, but what I want to talk about this week was point-and-click adventures, also known as graphic adventures which is the first type of video game I ever really played. I played mm-hmm. from very young growing up. I, I have this story I read about my book when um, I was five or six, my parents bought a pair of speakers for the computer. And this was at a time when most computers didn't have sound cards. And so it was a big kind of deal where you'd buy this bundle that included speakers and a sound card. And then they often come with software which demonstrated the capabilities of these devices. So my speakers came with a game called The Secret of Monkey Island. And also with Loom, which were two games by um, LucasArts, which was the uh, then fairly young games division of Lucasfilm, and The Secret of Monkey Island is about a dork who decides for whatever reason that he wants to be a pirate in a sort of comical, exaggerated version of 16th, 17th century golden age of pirating in the Caribbean. And so it's a very funny comedy game, uh, and I I could not read at this point because I was, yeah, yeah, four or five. I definitely could read when I was six, so it must have been four or five. But I had a babysitter who was in middle school and already did um, drama. So he read it for me and performed all the voices as we played through the game. And also helped me with the puzzles because those were really hard. Um, and that just really endeared me to this medium. And that was just one of my fondest memories. So I want to talk about a little bit what, what I appreciate about that genre in particular. So that you understand a little bit what a point-and-click adventure is. It's called point-and-click or graphic, which were both things that seem maybe self-explanatory because they come out of this genre known as text adventures or interactive fiction, which are one of the first types of video games. And these were on like mainframes that had no graphics. Mm-hmm. You would create these written worlds and you type commands into a terminal and it would give you input back. So you'd be like, you'd be like you're in a house, there's uh, a fence nearby, there's some trees over here, and it's like the famous open to one game, and there's, uh, there's a lamp on the table. And so then you say, get lamp. And so then it says, you pick up the lamp and tells you what you did. And then maybe you'll go in some caves later and you say light lamp. Okay, now you can see in the caves. It's a very simple puzzle. So adventure games are fundamentally about modeling worlds and the objects in them, exploring those worlds, uh, often having puzzles where you use objects on other objects or interact with the environment some way to progress. But then, of course, the Zoom medium develops populating those worlds with characters that you can talk to and dialogue trees. And so it's a medium that's very well suited for storytelling. And one of the, it is that as a rule, they tend to run not in real time so you're not racing the clock they don't test your reflexes the game sort of they're not turn-based exactly like a board game is but the game just sort of waits for you people shuffle around but it won't proceed without you doing things and so it's about you sort of exploring your environment you pick up everything that's not down down you talk to all the people and find out everything you can to kind of learn about this world and then you apply that knowledge to proceed through that world gamely opening up access to new locations and characters and a big part of adventure games is that you generally interact with the world through verbs. So there might be, again, the lamp on the table, and you can say, examine lamp, and it will describe the lamp to you. Or in a graphical game that we have now, the character will say something about the lamp. They'll make an observation. And you could say, um, you know, pick up lamp. 
and you pick a button, you can say use lamp, a character can say talk to character, push character, you know, and the different games have different verbs that interface with them, but I, I keep going back to to the examine world and and the way that in graphical video games they show us things. I mean we see things in the art, but the examine verb allows us to get the inner state of the characters out there. And I was thinking about this because I recently played a game called Techno Babylon, which is made on a, there's a system called AGS, Adventure Game Studio, that came out in the late nineties, which allowed people to make fairly easily Sierra adventures modeled on on uh, ones made by a company called Sierra. And it allowed people who really were not programmers but uh but had a love for this medium to put together some adventure games and then even though the tool is really long in the tooth now it runs it you know natively at 640 by 480 resolution at a time when you know most monitors are much 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 bigger than that you kind of have to stretch it it's very pixelated but it's very pure in its um how it embodies this form and a solid adventure game to me i was it's i kind of say it's like comfort food but comfort food is sort of, to me, implies something you can readily get, like a decent hamburger. Where it's like comfort food that's really, really hard to make well. It's really easy to make a bad adventure game. You would have everyone just stand around and dump exposition. You would have puzzles which basically come down to guess what the developer was thinking and that are almost impossible to complete. Or on the other hand, when they try to solve for that, you have know, puzzle that's like use key on lock, right? They're not really puzzles. They're just going through. So you have to balance the storytelling and the flow of it, I guess. But for me, they're... There's like, there are places you can go, they're comfortable, they show full worlds. I'm sort of babbling now, but basically Techno Babylon is, I would describe as a really cyberpunk, it's a really mm. solid cyberpunk game that gets cyberpunk. It's not just like the flashy style, it's not just like cynicism about dystopia, it's how do people deal with and interface with technology, what is the effect on our humanity, what is the effect on government. This is a game that specifically you switch characters between a police officer in uh, basically working for an AI that is largely runs the city he works with and a young woman who's basically uh, addicted to the future version of the net, which is basically a VR net. It only comes out to, you know, eat and drink and use the restroom, but finds uh, an attempt on her life. And so she sort of has to go out into the world and try to figure out what's going on while the police officer investigates and has his own that personal sounds drama. Really good. It's really it's really solid. And I would say like I keep saying solid because like I, I talk a lot about games that really push the boundaries of the medium. This isn't one. But it has but I would say one thing, it does really clever puzzles that make use of that. So they'll have puzzles that involve going between the online world doing things, having to interact with the real world. They'll have puzzles that involve um, you know, assembling robots or, or sampling genetic things to do something. That they're all really, really clever, cool. intuitive, thoughtful, but not something you really get stuck on. And it's, you know, it's 15 hours, which I increasingly think is a Did really good thing. Did you say who made it? Did I miss it? It's Watch It Eye Games. Who? Oh, sorry. Well, sorry. It's, I can't remember the name of the developer. What, what's it? Watch w Watch It Eye. They're the publisher, though. So W-O-D-G-E-T. W-A-D-J-E-T, I think. That's a G-E-T. Okay. Um, and the developer had made some amateurish games. He's currently working on a sequel to this. And it was produced and published by Dave Gilbert of Watch It Eye Games, who is famous for The Shiva was their first game. The Blackwell yeah. like games series. I actually haven't played any of them. My sisters played them. No. I bought them. My sister yeah. bought them. It's yeah. typical. So um, yeah, exactly. Joanna is an aspirational gamer. She buys a lot more games than she has time and to actually I play. And I play half an hour of many yeah. more games than I, than I just yeah. don't finish. Yeah, and I, I think because Joanna is someone who games are something you do in your alone time, and you don't have a lot of alone time. Well, I think that's part of it, and another part of it is that um, I the puzzle aspect or the 
actions you have to take to move the narrative forward aspect are not as intuitive to me as they are to you. Mm -hmm. And I will get tired. Want it. Uh, the story is the most interesting part for me. Yeah. I don't mind the interaction. But you'll get bur you'll get burnt off quickly. Yeah, I'll get burnt out quickly on trying to sort something out. Or if there's if the if the if there's a mechanic that's would that would be really interesting to someone who is a gamer first and a reader second. But is yeah. when I was playing last day of June, there's you replay scenes right, and different things happen at the end of them depending on how you do it. Mm -hmm. um, and I just. You don't want to go through the same actions again. Over and over and over yeah. again. Right, and it's not the same actions. It's different every time, but, but the same story again. It just wasn't interesting yeah. to me. So I stopped doing it, but I understand that it's an interesting narrative mechanic, you know. Um, and it's certainly like in films I've seen or in books I've read where they'll show the scene from a different character's perspective and you see new things. That's right. not That's not uninteresting to me. But I don't want to have to play through it over and over Right, again. right. So, so the idea of that sometimes games... The game part of it is sort of labor. Yes, you have to do to exactly. get through the story. And it sounds like you uh, often have the that experience with books, but not with games. So. Well, but no, I will say there's a lot of games that do that. Absolutely. And I, when I said there's a lot of bad adventure games, that's a big part of it because a good puzzle is something that keeps you engaged up until the point you solve it. Mm -hmm. And if it's if it's too easy, there's no puzzle, and you just have pure narrative, which can be good, but sometimes can lead to exposition fatigue and things like that. And if it's too hard, there's a point where you're stuck and you're just going around, you know, trying to use every object and every object, trying to hunt for pixels, see if you miss something. And that's, it has its time and place as sort of a, a break, a breaker, but you don't want that to happen very often. Um, like I was seeing Techno Babylon, that probably happened to me on two or three times, but over the course of 15 hours, then I was able to solve it. And, you know, and then in doing it, because the world is rich, I was like, oh, I didn't notice this detail before while I was looking for this thing. I found this computer and read some emails yeah. and, you know. I will say, um, you know, the game that I fell in love with for reasons totally unrelated to quality of game, which was Draken, Order of the Flame, because, you know, I was I was spent a year in Brazil um, and there wasn't, I didn't, my access to internet was intermittent and I visited a, a, a fairly popular bookstore, bookstore in a very popular fairly popular mall and they happened to have a few select PC games yeah. and this is one of them and it was back when they still had the big, the big boxes, boxes, you know, and uh, and it was like a, a fold open, and it was it was a Lara Croft knockoff, um, a Tomb Raider, uh, right, a Tomb Raider knockoff, but you could you could fly around on a dragon, correct, um, right. So the uh, one of the things I liked about that game is you know I beat it several times. Eventually, I figured out the cheat codes, and I would start doing things in the game like preempting things that were going to happen just to see how it would go. Right. Um, and you could turn on a, like immortality, and then just go jump off the edge of the map and right. end up in this weird graphics area. That which was is, almost which, as fun right, as playing. Which the is game. its own form of a big part of gaming is what I sometimes call mapping, and you're like mapping. I don't like that at all. But games, when we say exploration, we talk about exploring a world. Or when we talk about mastering a game, like beating challenges, at some level we're talking about the same thing, which is that we enter a space that's a full space where you don't know anything. We're deeply ignorant of this space. And over time, we become less ignorant of it. There's an area of the map that we don't know what's there, and we go there, and now we know what's there. Yeah. There's a challenge we don't know how to do, and then we figure out how to do it. In your case, you beat the game. You let you some level of mastery of the game, and then it can go further. You can figure out what's outside the game or how the game works. And you're learning, right? You're learning more about this and i think that's one thing that's really nice about games is that it gives us these challenges and these opportunities that in real life have serious consequences and often have stress attached to them because like 
if we try to save the person in real life and we fail, then we die, and that is not good. But in the game, if we die, we can try again. So it's a whole set world that we can we can make mistakes in. Games are things that allow you to make mistakes and offer often interesting choices mm-hmm. and interesting mistakes. Um, okay, that's enough about me rambling at games. But that'll be a recurring feature. Now we are going to Joanna's book club. You want to talk My about book that? Book club, you yeah, know. So um, one of one thing that is one one fact about Joanna Tober Price is that uh, when I was very tiny my you know i was having developmental delays it took me a while to walk it took me a while to do other things in the physical world and they took me to the doctor and the doctor said yeah she's probably always going to be slower at da 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 there's a whole list of them uh one of those things was reading um and so they were like you should take her back to the store see if your warranty's still good yeah right um back to the store back to the stork that's right um it turns out that the way it works is that there's sort of a like there's a handicap and i can overcome it by doing working harder at the thing that the average person has to but if working harder at that thing means working hard at it in front of other people there's a pretty good chance that i didn't do do it it. so reading is not one of those things uh you don't like so i spent a lot of time reading more than the average person did as a kid more than the average kid did as a kid um and so these days i'm an extremely fast reader I also have a pretty good grasp on the literature for different ages of people because I was an avid reader at most of those ages growing up. Um, and now you work at a, a branch of the library that has a lot of people from different age groups, right? Yeah. So that, that can come in handy. Like you can recommend books to people. That's and- right. And the reason why I'm bringing that up now is because when I, the books I'm talking about today, they're actually young adult novels. And they are actually best for young adults or for people who have been reading this type of young adult novel for long enough that, you know, it's very familiar to them. This is probably not a good book for... It's not like The Hunger Games or these sort of crossover books. Where anybody can just pick up and read it. So, but the reason why, there is a reason why I'm talking about these books specifically. I just found out a few days ago that uh, this book called uh, The New Mare Chronicles, specifically volume one of that book, came out in February. I, I'm, I'm late to the game. I'm sure I knew this late last year, but I just haven't been paying attention because my life has been crazy. Um, it is the latest book in a series of books by a woman named Tamora Pierce. Which is a great name. She writes young adult novels. These She has a few series. This particular one exists in the Tortal universe. And the first series of books is the Lioness Quartet. It is... Let me guess. It's four books. There you go. It is fantasy. Um, absolutely. The reason why I want to talk about it is that there is a trend in young adult literature for women. Probably most of you have heard of Twilight. Um, there are many other Stephanie Meyer-like authors coming out with similar fiction. And while it isn't necessarily even bad, the Twilight series is mostly terrible in my opinion. However, the first book actually wasn't terrible. I read it. And, it, you know, I didn't think it was the best book I'd ever read, but it also wasn't that awful. Right, it was and, and then it became, yeah. like, it just became popular. It blew up so right. much, you know, and then by the end of the series, you were like, oh my god, like, I can't even look at this, you know. Because um, presumably, once you achieve a certain level of success, one thing that happens is you have no editor. Well, no, yeah. it's not that. It's that her writing, she was, it's that, um, in my opinion, Stephanie Meyer was never prepared to be the kind of author that, like, J.K. Rowling is, right? right? She, she just didn't have the stamina for it. And I think that there's... 
you know, I think there's to some degree the market can be very unfair, right? So, like, everybody loved Twilight. And so they're like, give us more, give us more, give us more. And there's market for it. Yeah. And they really, I think they pushed her farther than she was capable of going at the time. Reading her books is like watching a breakdown. It's not pleasant. I wouldn't recommend it. That's a little, maybe it's a little bit of projection, but I just, anyways. Yeah. But so what that, what that book does and what other books like it do, and there are a lot of them out there, um, these sort of supernatural fantastic fantasy novels that center around female protagonists who lose control. And sometimes that involves the express act of rape. But more often than not, it's about a woman who doesn't have to do any work whatsoever to uh, fall to fall in love because she's powerless, to have good relationships with people because she's powerless, to she doesn't have to take responsibility for anything. Right. And I do understand the appeal of that kind of fantasy. Lord knows, I understand it. But I want now to suggest that there is an alternative that is equally compelling. And it's very easy to fall into a trap of like, let's write, you know, young adult fiction that is positive and the image is positive and everybody's healthy and making happy decisions. Because you're thinking more about the image than the storytelling. And you read it and you're like, this is edutainment, right? Like right. nobody really wants to read this book. It's like it's like a it's like if a book was a virtue signal, right? right. Who wants to do that? So um Tamora Pierce, when I first encountered her novels, I was a young adult. Um, my oldest friend introduced them to me and we read them together. Uh, I have a very specific memory of the second, the second series uh, after The Lioness Quartet, the Immortal series. The second book was checked out of the library, but the third and fourth were there. So I bought the second book for like $7 from Barbara's bookstore and I checked out the third and fourth and I called up my oldest friend and I said to her, I beat the person who's, who's also reading this book, this book series at the library for I have checked out the third and fourth, and that person is screwed. And I was very proud of myself. How old were you when you did this? I was like 13, 12, 13. But I was very excited about, you know, having outsmarted that person mm -hmm. with my $7 <laughs> my card. Um, but uh, yeah, so what what makes this series what makes this series really good is that even though it does really focus on the protagonist's agency, right? Um, it really is about mostly about uh, uh, young women taking responsibility for their own lives and doing hard work and accomplishing things and being badass in a very like in a very obviously feminist way mm -hmm. uh, it also uh, the way I like to say it is not only does it bring a little uh, a little bit of responsibility and notions of being a responsible young adult into fiction it brings a little bit of fantasy back out into the world okay. it's um, fine. It's, it's not just that it's fun, it's that you can, it, it opens the door for thinking about what is possible in a way that is not, that, that extends past what one normally thinks of, right? So, so it's, it's almost fantastical. So can you ground this a little bit? Can you like tell me like if you have a favorite book of hers or just a yeah. little bit about the yeah. plot and setup? So, so the Tortolan universe is one that it opens up with a woman uh, who has a woman and her twin brother and the woman is to become a mage mm -hmm. uh, and the twin brother is to become a knight because that's how it works in the kingdom boys right. become knights and women become mages mm -hmm. now uh the way it's set up is that boys can also become mages 
Um, but in this particular case, there, these, this set of twins is, is part of a lineage in which it would be shameful yeah. if they didn't have a knight. So the guys going off to night school and the night school. Uh, the night school. <laughs> night school. No one's going off to be a mage. The way it's set up, the woman is the protagonist. She is very afraid of her gift, of her capital G gift, of her magic, but she really wants to be a knight. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, her brother couldn't care less about being a knight, but he really wants to be a mage. Mm -hmm. So they trade places, right? And so it is very much about challenging the patriarchy and overcoming the patriarchy and all of this business. Like, that's very much part right. of that book. Um, it is an element there, but I but would say the focus of the book isn't really political, it expressly political, the way we see it today, right? It's really about... Because it's about those individuals and their... And it's really about her internal struggle, not... So, I mean, it does cover, obviously, her having to pretend to be a guy. But really what it covers is her having to come to the terms with being a woman, having to come to terms with using her gift, having to learn skills that are new and hard, uh, because she's decided that this is something she wants to do, right? And there are all these things between here and being a knight that she doesn't want to do, mm -hmm. you know, that are terrifying. That includes things like, you know, learning sword fighting or whatever, but it also includes things like kissing somebody yeah. and like, um, you know, just all kinds of lived experiences. She, in all of the books, I would say, in Tamora Pierce's series, features somebody that is chosen in some way, right? Like, some god or goddess has yeah. marked this character, right? But... That's like 90% of video games, too. Right. And, yeah. and almost all fantasy novels, and even the new ones coming out. Like, yeah. even Stephanie Meyer's Twilight, right? Right. Uh, whatever her name is. What's her name? Bella. Bella, Bella Forks. Bella... The or Forks she's from Forks. Place. Bella somebody yeah. is... Um, Swan? Yeah, Bella Swan is chosen by, you know, she's the chosen mortal, right? Mm -hmm. That happens. But in Tamora Pierce's books, being chosen is a whole hell of a lot like just being alive right, in right. regular time, right? Like for us, there's not, you know, the, the it, it makes you more conscious in a way. It makes you, it's hard, it sounds really ridiculous when I phrase it this way, but it's like, no young adult woman reading this book is that reading the Alana books is that different from Alana, even though she's chosen, right? right. Whereas in Twilight, um, we they are different, right? Yeah. Like no vampire is going to show up at your door tomorrow and whisk you away, right? right. Like in that, no one's going to take away that responsibility from you. But struggling with it, looking for guidance from something beyond the everyday, right? That's something that a lot of us do. Um, and that series of books. It's formative, it's interesting, it's entertaining. It, it gives you characters to love over, you know, many series. And it is, in my opinion, a better... An opinion. Uh, it is, in my opinion, a better um, solution to the quandary of... To the question of what should young women read than, what, than, than the stuff coming out. Now, um, one word for the dark fantasy that's coming out today is grimdark. I've heard it a few times. Which is amazing. Can I say why that's amazing? Yeah. Do you know where the word Grimdark originated from? I don't, tell me. So there is a game called, do you know what Warhammer 40k is? So back in the 80s, uh, there was a company called Games Workshop, and they made a miniatures game at a time when that was not really a big thing called Warhammer. And Warhammer was a game about humans and orcs and dwarves, you know, these kind of Tolkien-esque races fighting. You know, as you played on a board, you got bot miniatures, you painted them, which became a big part of the game. Um, but it was characterized by being unusually cynical, violent, gory, nasty, you know, everything is terrible sort of world. 
then they made a, and probably one of the few really clever things this people did, they said, well, what if you took that generic token, token as fantasy world, and moved it 40,000 years into the future? So they made Warhammer 40k, in which the space marines are fighting, you know, space orcs and the Eldar, which are like space out. I mean, it sounds dumb, but it works really cool. And the tagline is, in the grim darkness of the far future, there is only war. And so that aesthetic that this instantiated came to be called Grimdark because of that tagline. And so it's amazing that this thing, which was, you know, let's be honest, dominated by 20 to 40 year old men and almost no one else has now come to be applied to girls white novels. Yeah, exactly. Uh, So, yeah, so Grimdark, this notion, which really is this dystopic vision in which a person succeeds by being by being the right kind of helpless right and i think that 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 is interesting and has its own appeal it is not worthless but as a way of talking about what what a person aspires to be mm-hmm. um it is you know i don't really think that what they say what they do say video game designers say about designing video games is you should never d- design a game to be educational first right um and i feel that way about books too right you, um, first you want to tell a story that stands on its own right. two legs um, and then if that story has powerful themes and messages you know cool and so that the story the story of aspiring to be something right not the educational message about aspiring and what you should be like but the story of aspiring to be someone comes through a lot clearer in books that deal with the struggle of being responsible for things that matter than they do in the total disregard of responsibility and so for that reason i think that um and so the the latest two books or the sorry the latest book the numeric chronicles volume one is actually about a dude um but it's a guy that has been through we've seen throughout all books previous Mm -hmm. um and that story, instead of focusing on things that are particular to women, focuses on things that are particular to rural folks um, and coming out of a rural setting into uh, a setting where they're, you know, people are, you know, fancier and richer and more well-resourced mm-hmm. and succeeding in that area despite not having the background and not, right? Um, and that is also interesting, I think, that her bias tends to show a little bit, the author's bias tends to show a little bit, and it's a similar bias to mine, right? But because, just on a personal note, because, you know, for about a year now, I've been dating someone who uh, has a very different relationship to the Academy than I do. Mm -hmm. Um, I have learned a lot about how much of it is bias and how much of it is not. And when I read the Numeric Chronicles volume one, I see, a bias that I share, um, I also think that... Okay, I probably know what you mean, but for our audience, when you say the bias in, in whose favor? Uh, in, favor of, in favor of educational systems and, and I think, urban gotcha. lifestyles. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, Cosmopolitanism. Cosmopolitanism, there you go. I think that um, despite the fact that that book definitely has that bias, uh, it's still is at heart about somebody who has whose capabilities are raw right they're not um they're not well shaped and they are put up against you know challenges that are they've not been all they can be 
Uh, right, and so this it's still a, it's still a, it's still a story about becoming that is very interesting, and um, in some ways, very, say it's very becoming, very becoming, and in some ways it's very sad because you see characters in that book who you know from previous books don't end up don't end well, right? And you see them before all of that happened. So there's also this sort of ghost aspect to it where you really feel you really begin to see how it's possible to uh, be misled, right, and to end up in the wrong place. So it's it's good, and the books are good, and they are specifically very good for young adults, and I would recommend them. That sounds awesome. End, end of spiel. Uh, also, have you met Tamora Pierce? Uh, a few times, yeah, I have. She does signings. She has a she has a short story that takes place in the Tortal universe that it's, it's, very, it's very moving. Numair, who the latest book yeah. is about, in the main series of books, um, he turns a person into a tree for reasons um, that he has to in that moment. And, you know, someone says to him, someone says to him, well, why don't you do this all the time with your enemies? Why don't you just turn them into trees? And he goes, well, for every human that I turn into a tree, somewhere a tree turns into a human. Um, and you have to be careful. And there's a short story about, about a tree that turns into a human. And in, in a society that does not like that human. And it's a very sad short story um, and very, very moving. Uh, and right after she published that that book with that short story in it, I got it signed by her. And that's why I remember it. Was this at, at um, the American Library Association? No, it was in Oak Park. Oak Park. It was a long time ago. I was a kid still. Oh, that's awesome. And the short story was... Did she live in that area? No. No, she was just passing through. Yeah, yeah. She does it a lot. I mean, she's... She has been in a number of places that I have been in. My, I don't know what your experience with meeting people is, but I'm off, often hesitant to meet people who I admire a lot. In case they're terrible. Or even just normal, yeah. right? It, you know, if they're not super inspired when I talk to them, I, you know, it just, yeah. it brings the whole thing down for me. And for me, the media, you know, feeling connected yeah. to them through the media is more important. Yes. But um, certainly, uh, I have met her a few times. And she... It's funny, I haven't even, I really didn't think about bringing things up in this podcast, but she, my first experience with RPGs was actually a text-based Tortal RPG. Nice. 12, yeah. Shit, it has been so long since I thought about that. But yeah, so. Well, uh, we have been running for almost 2 hours, 15 minutes. That is really long for a pilot. I think a lot of people are going to look at this and go, holy crap, yeah, who knows, no, we'll see, we'll see. Um. But uh, it's probably time to wrap it up. So um, having endured looking at me for a little over two hours, are we still friends? I think so. Okay, well, that's good to hear. Are we still friends? That's how we, that's our finishing that's question, our still, right? Yes, yes, are we still friends? Maybe we'll have new questions later, but for now, that, that's, the, that's the stakes. And Next time we'll talk a little bit about the JP system. Yep, coming up in episode two, uh, we will be talking about insert things here that we'll be talking about once we figure out what insert we're talking about. Insert things where. Ha 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 Okay. Uh, do we need some sign off? Something, something, something. We can record that later. Okay, bye.